This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. This episode is sponsored by LifeAid. Now, LifeAid has several products, one of which I want to highlight because it's so pertinent to you, the sleep-deprived audience. Their product, FocusAid, is a healthy alternative to the energy drinks that I see so many of us relying on because we are exhausted. There's no other way of putting it. These energy drinks that I've seen are putting our men and women into hospitals with arrhythmias, GI distress, adding to anxiety, certainly affecting mental health. So what FocusAid has done is they've removed all the terrible ingredients and used natural, healthy ingredients natural sweeteners and replace the high levels of caffeine with a nootropic and what a nootropic is is a supplement for your brain as a first responder i can attest that this then allows you to be alert on a call but when it is time to rest to go to bed whether it's the end of the shift whether it's after a call you're actually able to not only sleep but get a better quality of sleep as well so an incredible product I urge you guys to try and LifeAid has reached out to you, the audience, to offer you a discount of 15% if you use the discount code SHIELD at lifeaidbevco.com. So that's L-I-F-E-A-I-D-B-E-V-C-O.com. Use the code SHIELD, which is S-H-I-E-L-D. And please try this. It's going to end up being less expensive than the drinks that you're using And I'm telling you right now, it's an incredible product. And please reach out and let me know what you think. Welcome, guys, to episode 269 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing. And this week, I'm very excited to bring to you two guests, each with an incredible story. But the way they met is also another story in itself. 
So Ben Vernon is one of two firefighter paramedics that was stabbed on scene by a patient back in 2015. Mark Foreman is a career law enforcement officer who retired and became a psychologist and started working with first responders. Well, as you can imagine, the trauma that Ben had from that scene, he ended up finding Mark and through EMDR and some other incredible practices, Ben was not only brought through that trauma, but was able to actually return back to work even more resilient than before. This episode we did face-to-face, and I have to put my hands up and own this. I left my uh, AC power cord at the hotel, so we got about an hour and change into the interview when my computer died. So then we carried on the rest of the conversation over Skype. So again, if you hear another, like Buck's episode, another change in, in audio sound, that is why... Uh, the good thing is Mark has an entire audio setup at his house, so I don't even know if you can even really tell the difference. So before we get to this amazing interview, as I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app you're listening to this on and subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading the feedback when you guys do. And then most importantly, leave a rating. A five-star rating makes us so much more visible to other people looking for a project like this. And then use your social media and all this darkness and negativity for something good. Share these incredible episodes. Let people know that there are men and women with solutions to so many of the problems that we struggle with out there. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ben Vernon and Mark Foreman. Enjoy. All right, Ben and Mark, we are sitting here in Mark's house, um, just had an amazing dinner. Um, and I want to start just by saying thank you so much for inviting me. Not only that, setting me up for other interviews, but uh, I'm looking forward to this. So the people listening, where are we sitting right now? Uh, we're in Oceanside, California, sitting in a garage <laughs> of a mutual friend of ours uh, doing an interview between some uh, weightlifting equipment. <laughs> We are indeed. Okay. So um, I'm going to start with you first, Ben. Uh, where were you born and what was your family dynamic like? Um, I was born in Anaheim, California. Um, parents uh, with a little sister. Uh, the four of us grew up in Valencia, California by Magic Mountain and uh, spent my days there in LA, Los Angeles County, and then came down to San Diego to go to school at UCSD. Family dynamics amazing. I, I think I... I'm one of the few first responders that doesn't have a, a dark past. Um, my father's a fire chaplain and my mother's a school teacher and my sister's a school teacher. And um, so just grew, grew up with a great family life. Interesting. So your dad was a fire chaplain? Yeah, well, he was a, he was a chaplain and then uh, worked at the church and owned his own business as I was growing up. But I actually became a fire chaplain after I joined the fire service, uh, hearing all the stories and knowing that, you know, he's a very talented chaplain and so he thought well the fire chaplain's for me so it's fun uh sharing stories with him now he's uh in mesa arizona and and works with them so it's been a lot of fun uh sharing and he and i this year uh in 2020 are going to go to the uh new york um st patty's day parade together both in our class a's so i'm really looking forward to that so brilliant that's okay. gonna be fun so that's a that's an awesome way to start this off as a man who was in the mental health mental, spiritual health era. What has been your, his observation of our profession through his career? 
Yeah, just uh, learned a learned a ton through me. Um, he jokes, you know, he's a fire chaplain now for about five hundred people in Mesa, but he said he he was a fire chaplain for one for the past twelve years, um, which helped him prepare for Mesa. Um, <clears throat> you know, he's he's observed me, and if he tries not to interfere or you know, but every now and then he does pull me aside and go, "Hey, man, you're you're not healthy. You know, are you okay? Because I'm I'm hearing it in your voice. You're not something's up. What's up?" Um, he's always been a very good listener and, and uh, someone I've been able to share my stories with and cry over the phone with. So he, I've always had a really good support system when it comes to this job. And has he had any observations of, in his department, I guess specifically, it's what he's seeing, areas that we've done well in our profession and areas that we haven't done well that, that hopefully we're fixing now? Well, as I've been learning and I've learned from, you know, Mark Foreman, the doctor sitting to my left, um, as I've shared what I've learned with with my dad, he's been able to kind of take that and then see it in his own department. So I think we're both kind of learning together through this. Um, you know, obviously, I think the fire service in general is really good at, at the family orientation, at taking care of each other, um, picking each other up for cancer and for on the job injury. Uh, but I think every department across this country struggles trying to find out about this mental health thing. I think every department across the country seems to be a little behind uh, and trying to catch up when it comes to mental health. So Absolutely. All right, so staying with you so we're not moving the mic around too much. Um, so what about athletics? I always talk about this, the fitness side. What, were you a sportsman when you were young? I did, yeah. I played uh, I played soccer and volleyball throughout high school, and then I played Division One volleyball in college and uh, got to travel the country and, and played all the biggest schools and – um, my coach in college ended up becoming the Olympic coach and won a gold medal. So I like to live vicariously through him. Uh, I was not very big uh, on the volleyball team. I was, I'm only 6'1", but I could jump really high. So we were talking earlier about white men, <laughs> white men not being able to jump. I, I actually broke the mold on that. I could jump really high. But, uh, but you know, playing across the country and traveling, and, and that's where I really fell in love with the team aspect and it was hard for me after college. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something team related. And so the fire service kind of fell in my lap and I was like, this is it. This is everything I had in college sports I have on the fire department. So yeah, I loved, I loved being a peak athlete and, and being a divisional athlete was a ton of fun. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't trade that for anything. And how do you think the sport of volleyball specifically prepared you physically for the job? Well, truthfully, you know, volleyball is very short uh, bursts of energy. You know, the, the plays are very quick and then there's a, a recovery time. And, and so the fire service is, is not, I mean, it's, it's short bursts of intense speed, but it's, you know, a, a CrossFit workout of 45 minutes as hard as you can go until you puke in your mask. Um, and so volleyball, I would just say the workouts before the games were more, more translated over to the fire service you know they would work us out until we'd puke and and so then coming on the fire service you know going through the fire academy the, the workouts i found were were commensurate you know they were the same and so I, I did really well throughout the fire academy um but you know jumping high is not really needed in the fire service uh so it unfortunately hasn't translated over but uh Okay, brilliant. Well, jumping high is probably more pertinent to the police department. Yeah, chasing someone, <laughs> chasing someone leaping over fences. fences. Exactly. So let's bring Mark in. So Mark, same thing for you. Where were you born? Family dynamic. Yeah, yeah. I was born in uh, Youngstown, Ohio. And uh, family dynamics. Uh, I'm learning a lot about it now. 
I was born in 1957, and it's only recently as I'm a therapist, uh, and I get to understand what my dynamics were. Uh, my Both parents were alcoholics. Uh, it's kind of a natural thing, so I never thought anything of it. Uh, my dad was in the Navy uh, as an enlisted and then an officer. So uh, through the Vietnam War, uh, he did two deployments into Vietnam, nine months deployments on a ship. Uh, plus a lot of traveling and stuff, so he just wasn't around a lot. And uh, that, assort, of course, right during my childhood affected my development that played out later on and later on in life when uh, I needed him to be there and he just wasn't able to be there for me. Uh, they're both passed away now. Uh, my mom died in 2001. My dad died last year, just this year, actually, uh, August of this year. Um, so, I don't know. What else? No, so we're looking back at that, knowing what you know now, knowing that alcohol is a coping mechanism that we use very you know, poorly in our profession. Did you retroactively recognize any of the reasons why alcoholism was an issue with either of them? Yeah, um, I did. As a therapist, I'm able to look back across that. And I didn't learn this until my mom had passed away, that she'd run away from home when she was 12 and ended up being raised by her older brother who is 18 years senior to her. And now as I work with people that have similar dynamics, I get an understanding of what that's like for an individual to, for a 12-year-old or 12-year-old female to run away from home, a lot of stuff had to be going on. Mm-hmm. Stuff that I never knew. I learned this through a cousin once she passed away. And similar with my dad, uh, toward the end of his days, he was fi- eventually sharing with me the amount of abuse and trauma that he had sustained at the hands of his dad back in the early 30s and 1940s. Yeah, it's amazing. that it, It's heartbreaking that I'm learning just how much abuse and trauma there is in the world. And I, you know, I put my hands up. I was so blessed. I was the kid that grew up with the, you know, supportive family. Were there, you know, goods and bads in certain areas? Yeah, of course. But... Um, but yes, so many people, and I think that's what our profession attracts, is these hurt individuals want to stop the hurt, and some of them turn to police and fire and the military to try and be part of the solution. Exactly. I, I, I see that in my the work that I do now, that as I get up close and personal with each of the people I interact with, that uh, transgener, tra- trans, transgenerational transmission of trauma is, is a major issue for much of modern society now yeah absolutely all right so what about the athleticism side for you were you a sportsman not throughout childhood no i was in band (laughs) marching band (laughs) several of my guests were just to let you know and they became seals or whatever so and i didn't become an athlete until i was uh well throughout the police academy of course i had to learn how to run uh they had shin splints and suffered through all that and everything, and we had to maintain a certain level of athleticism. But I actually became, a, a I think, a true athlete as my oldest son uh, went into soccer, football. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Good catch. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Culturally confident. <laughs> I appreciate you understand my people. Go on. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> football, it's better than football. Uh, the other football. No. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to turn away many listeners. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, so when my son at eight uh, signed him up to, for uh, s- soccer and 
there's a referee table and they're saying, we need referees. My son looks at me, hey, you want to do it, Dad? And I said, sure, why not? And I became a, a soccer referee. And like so many other things I had done throughout my life, this trait that I carry within myself, I took off with it, did it for over 20 years, uh, excelled at it, rose to the national level uh, within that particular framework and trained by uh, Ken Aston, who was actually awarded, an, uh, I guess it's a knighthood by the Queen. He, he was a British uh, citizen, uh, came FIFA referee, and he was one of the ones that trained me to be a referee. So through that, I cultivated my athleticism. And then in the, as I started aging and getting into my 40s, learned, discovered CrossFit and that sort of thing, and by the time I was 55, I was at the peak of my fitness. No longer, but at, at around 55, I was at my peak. And 55, active duty police officer still. No, I'd already retired. Oh, you'd already retired, but there you go. So even even better. Yeah. 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 I was, cool. I was more fit after afterwards <laughs> while I was doing the work. <laughs> well, speaking of law enforcement, so what got you into the, the police department? So I was working at a liquor store, uh, the highest paid job I'd ever had at that point in my life. Uh, this was back in the late 70s, uh, 1978, 79. Uh, San Diego PD started uh, announcing that they were going to hire 300 new officers. And that is a major endeavor to hire 300 new officers. They were having an attrition rate of about 30 or 40 officers a month. Wow. So they were trying to put, put up overlapping academies, uh, pretty large academies. So I saw the opportunity. There had been a sheriff's deputy coming into the liquor store that I was working in, and uh, I'd hear his stories and stuff. So when I saw the article, I said, ah, why not me? Not knowing that it was probably in my blood, this rescuer, helper mentality of moving into other people's problems. Uh, so San Diego PD picked me. The sheriffs didn't want me. <laughs> they lost. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I, I was hired. I started the academy in 1979. Brilliant. And then just before we go back to Ben, that you, what were your initial assignments? Were you regular beat cop or did you already start? Because I know you were in some certain groups. Yeah. So all San Diego cops start is in patrol. Uh, I started doing patrol, uh, went through the various phase trainings and uh, so I graduated the academy in November of 79 and in, in, by 1982 I was selected for a special enforcement team uh, driving motorcycles enduro motorcycles oh really uh, it sucked to drive a motorcycle and get paid for it but, yeah it sounds uh, terrible so being a jet ski cop <laughs> uh, maybe even better I don't know uh, <laughs> so uh Driving around, taking the bike where wherever the concept was is wherever a pedestrian could go, we could take the motorcycles mm -hmm. downtown, uh, up Port Plaza, into the stadium, out in the hills, uh, upstairs, sidewalks. It, it really didn't matter. Right? We would take them anywhere. Very cool. Yeah. And then I had 14 assignments in 28 years. Brilliant. Well, I want to get back to those. So let's go back to Ben for a moment, though. So... 
So you found yourself in the fire service again. What were your, you know, first few years? What did you, you know, what kind of areas of San Diego did you find yourself in? Yeah. So uh, probation's a year, and uh, you know, San Diego's the eighth largest city in the United States, the fourteenth largest fire department, and I was immediately attracted to the special teams. You know, all of the different um, <clears throat> cool extras you could do on the fire service. So pretty early in my career, I jumped onto the hazmat team, and you know, spent a month in hazmat school just learning about i mean every kind of there's weapons of mass destruction there's acids there's bases there's gases liquids solids just and it's funny because i hated chemistry in college but you're telling me now chemistry that can kill me and that chemistry i'm going to go in and deal with a massive spill i was just oh i couldn't get enough it was awesome we are polar opposites by the way (laughs) yeah well (laughs) for me i realized early like i just like being the guy on the end of the rope right like i like being in it and i like in hazmat i like the banner tape goes up and even firefighters are like not happy and not comfortable and i get to go under the banner tape in my suit and go looking for trouble like that just to me is the best and what I didn't realize is that got me on our urban search and rescue team, uh, California Task Force 8. There's 28 teams in the United States that are that belong to FEMA. And you go anywhere in the country where, you know, there's really big problems. And so being a hazmat specialist got me on the USAR team. The USAR team said, you know, at a minimum, everyone needs to be a rescue specialist. So they started sending me to all the rescue schools, confined space, trench, swift water, uh, structural collapse technician, high angle rope, low angle rope which I'm just eating up, right? And uh, and then we have a heavy rescue team, uh, similar to a truck company. Their only job is, you know, the worst of the worst um, problems. And so five years into my career, I a spot opened up on our heavy rescue team and I got on the team. So within five years of my career, I was on three special teams. I was working downtown in the heart of the city on our heavy rescue. It's, you know, the most elite team with regards to rescue that we have. And I just couldn't, I couldn't believe how fortunate my career was going. I was so happy and just so I, my ego was getting pretty big. You know, I'm feeling pretty much like a badass. Um, and that's kind of where I was five years into my career. Okay. And I know you've talked about this. I think it was Scott Orr's podcast, um, which I love as well. Uh, what was your kind of personal perspective of PTSD, mental trauma kind of? Yeah, I was definitely, I I am embarrassed to say I was that guy that if you'd come to me and said, hey, I'm really struggling, I would have said, well, suck it up, buttercup. You know, how did you sign up for this and not expect to run on dead children and mutilated bodies? Like that's literally in our job description. So if you sign up for it and then you see it, like how could that bother you? I don't get it. Um, And I would have said, oh, if you're struggling, you know, maybe this isn't the job for you. Maybe you should do something else right i just would have every stupid thing i've heard now come out of other people's mouths was definitely coming out of my mouth um like that (laughs) (laughs) yes that is our our dog um but yeah i just you know i didn't i didn't understand mental health i didn't have any education in it and that's that's definitely something that mark and i trying to fix looking back there are no classes for firefighters with regards to their own mental health and understanding the signs and the symptoms and all of that. So I was ignorant. I was ignorant of, of the problem that was being faced. And I was young and cocky and arrogant. And, you know, I was I was part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I've talked about this a lot on the podcast. And I, I try and kind of set it up where our generation, I mean, pretty much all of us sitting here within a decade or so, we were raised with a philosophy that a man 
is John Rambo, John Wayne, you know, Rocky. And the reality is, firstly, none of those people actually ever did anything, you know, for their community. Like, you know, the first responders that are listening, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, they just didn't. They're actors. Um, but secondly, it was complete fallacy bullshit, you know, and I always point to, and you probably heard me talk about this on other ones. If you watch the Band of Brothers, the real men that talk still getting choked up about something that happened 60 plus years before. That is a real man, you know, a real leader as well. And that's what I realize is that you can't blame. I mean, you, you know, now we're educated, but 10 years ago, we didn't know how to lift weights. We went to the global gyms and we didn't know how to eat. You know, we followed all the fads and we thought that men shouldn't cry. And, you know, and, and we're having to literally reverse engineer a lot of the lies that we were told. And it wasn't malicious. It was just complete misinformation. So the most, you know, the youngest generation now, as we were talking about earlier, they get it. Like the whole, you know, racism thing. They came up in a, in a, in a generation where, of course, that's not right. You know, whereas a lot of our generations previous to that were programmed for some pretty ridiculous philosophies. Yeah. I laugh. You know, my brother-in-law found an article. I'm sure you've seen this. It's floating out online, but it was like a 1950s home ec on how a woman should behave when her husband comes home from work. And it was like a legitimate textbook. Mm -hmm. And he passed it on to my sister who proceeded to beat him to death with the book but it's pretty funny just all of the <laughs> things it was saying you know uh, you know cook your man meals and shut up when he comes home and i was just really funny looking back going good lord like that was such terrible information so yeah well actually we'll move the microphone back to to mark um but i want to add to that so i was talking to ashley who i interviewed today as well and i've talked about this a few times what is crazy is world war ii happened all our men went overseas, fought alongside different creeds, cultures, you know, religions. The women stepped up into the male positions, kicked ass doing the things that we prided ourselves on doing. And then 1950s hit and we're hanging black people and women are supposed to be back in the kitchen again. I never understood. And I know I repeat myself. Everyone listens to lots of podcasts, but I still don't get it. Why did we go from such tragedy and such courage and such strength to this back ass Victorian 50s era that we had do you have any answers for me <laughs> good luck <laughs> fear uh, yeah Th thank you for asking the question uh in the 60s uh we were living in north chicago my dad was stationed at uh the navy base up there in north chicago and it was during the era of the Watts riots in Los Angeles. And I clearly remember him taking me out with him to, at night to the equivalent of what would be a Walmart today. I think it was called Walgreens. So I remember my dad taking me out at night uh, to a store uh, to buy a gun in case the niggers came north into the town that we were living in. And that gun stayed in the family uh, for decades until I finally got it and uh, passed on to me and I, I got rid of it. And there was a mentality that tend to percolate up through, and it was all based in fear. And I, I see similar concepts. Uh, fear drives much of our problems today 
whether it's individual within relationships or how we deal with PTSD moments as first responders or it really much doesn't matter what it is. It's how we navigate our, ex- our personal experiences with fear, much less the collective experience around fear. Yeah. And it is, it's crazy. I mean, I, I see that and you know, I put a post up the other day and prejudice does revolve exactly what you said. Prejudice is fear. Oh, you know, the gays, they're going to try and have sex with me. Dude, they're not going to try and have sex. I promise you. I've seen you with your shirt off. <laughs> but, you know, it is. It's like, I don't understand it. Therefore, I'm not going to take the time to learn that someone's from a different nation. Someone believes in a different version of their God. So I'm just going to, you know, whitewash it and say that it's ridiculous and I'm scared. And so we should kill them. And it, it's, it's crazy. And I agree with you completely. I think that is kind of percolated into health especially mental health with us i don't like you talking about those issues because i'm actually totally aware of them within myself but i want you to believe this facade that i'm actually doing better and you know i'm the salty fireman cop whatever and it doesn't get to me and sadly we know that's the same person that goes home drinks alone because he or she has lost their spouse kids whatever and, you know, we've got all the proof in the world that that mentality isn't healthy. Very well put. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's an using and theming that starts to develop, that starts to emerge. Uh, first responders, uh, doesn't matter, cops, firefighters, paramedics, lifeguards, people that are out there on the front, front lines uh, start to develop a coping strategy to protect themselves from the drama, the human drama that's playing out in front of them over and over. And part of that protection starts to actually pull them away from the people that they're out there to serve. And it shows up in the brain, it shows up in brain scans, etc. that when we step away from being empathetic, it starts to put us in our, a different group. The more we open to our empathy, it starts to pull us in closer together. In uh, we can switch hats very easily. Uh, simply sitting with somebody that looks different than us, holding them off in an us group, and then sitting with that same individual wearing the same sports memorabilia, same sports team. All of a sudden, we're in the same group. Mm-hmm. And it changes internally. It changes the way we release neurochemistry and the dopamine levels and some of the other neurochemistry that's flowing through us and how we feel when we're with somebody like us versus when we're somebody with somebody with not like us. Yeah, that tribalism. The, tr- the tribalism, yeah, in, exactly. in a positive way. And that's the thing. People think of tribalism like people trying to murder each other. Tribalism is, I think, inherently good right. as long as you don't think the other tribe is, you know, again, you're, you're threatened by other other tribe, therefore let's go murder them. So so we got a representation of two tribes right here in the, in the room, uh, cops and firefighters. Mm-hmm. The cops alone and two firefighters are here. Yep. <laughs> like Outnumbered. <laughs> but we come together, we go to the same scene, t- same scenes and experience the same traumas and traumatic exposure of uh, human adversity differently. And we're similar, but there's a rivalry that's often comes between the two. Yeah. And sometimes it's a fun rivalry, but sometimes not so fun. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're going to talk about that, and then sometimes an event brings you guys together in, in a totally you know unusual way. So I want to stay with you just for a moment. Um, I saw in one of the bios that I, I pulled out for you um, that you would, you'd obviously in your career in the police department had seen a lot of trauma, especially 
you know, within children. What was that that you saw? And I'd love to also hear about the, the Justice Center, you know, how you transitioned into that. Starting f- pretty much as a police officer from day one, uh, childhood trauma is right there what cops and firefighters are exposed to on a daily uh, daily routine. And it, become, it starts to become routine. Uh, it's the child abuse, child molest, uh, neglect, abandonment, and it's repetitive, and it, sometimes it's extremely severe. Uh, one of the most memorable cases that actually was is one of my PTSD type of events that I carry with me that have, I've resolved it, I believe, uh, was early on and probably about my second year of being a patrol officer coming uh, across to take a rape, uh, rape investigation with a 12-year-old victim and sitting with her, interviewing her and hearing her story and hearing that she was also the victim of seeing her mom murdered by her dad before the rape had occurred. Oh, my God. Totally different incidents. What she was carrying with her and uh, those sorts of things. And then when my partner and I were done with the investigation, we'd spend hours driving around trying to find where this crime occurred. We're taking her to the children's receiving home so that she could be placed into protective custody. And she just grabbed onto us, both of us, gave us a hug and did not want to let us go. I was young. I was like 24. wasn't a dad yet. Didn't know what it was like to be a parent, and that stuck with me. Uh, that was the beginning of just many of hundreds, probably, of similar stories. But frequently, the first one sticks. We can never have a first kiss again. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. Yeah. Now, seeing what you saw, um, and I've had people on here that have made mistakes early in life people have been through trauma you know that have excelled come out out of the ashes and people that have had a bumpy road that have ended up in prison before they you know found their way um what do you see as an officer as far as that kind of trauma then taking someone down a road of crime down a road of addiction you know violence i'm not quite sure how as an officer i was seeing it taking them down that road until I was a sergeant, uh, I'd already adopted uh, the two kids that my wife and I adopted in the early 2000s and was partnering with a pediatrician and a child psychologist, psychiatrist, actually. And we were working around what do we do with kids that are exposed to developmental issues around trauma that I was learning at a deeper level on the research level of the effects of kids being exposed to adverse experiences and the the effect that has across the entire life trajectory on entire health of an individual. It's, it's referred to as the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And it's a landmark study in the U.S. and I, it's been taken out worldwide to see how it plays out in other places. In other words, when we're experienced to childhood traumas, it affects the way we develop socially, emotionally, cognitively, and ultimately affects our relationships and our physical health, resulting in early death. And it also, uh, when we go into the prisons and we evaluate and test for uh, adverse childhood experiences, uh, people that are in prison oftentimes will score very high on those assessments. But so do public safety workers. Really? 
Interesting. Well, you mentioned the prison. That's beautiful because I was about to ask you about that. I'm just a fireman sitting right now in a garage talking to two dudes. Um, but I've had some amazing people on and two areas that I talk about. I've had some guests from, from each ones are the way that we treat addiction through incarceration and even the way that we do incarceration from my perspective as a complete layman doesn't appear to work and it seems like both of those may in fact be rooted with mental ill health those drugs are used to fill the void you know create addicts obviously then there's the the selling dealing side as well but they the same thing with the prison from my perspective and i'm not well embedded in the prison systems it seems like locking people away putting them um in an environment where possibly they might be exposed to more trauma might be um, amplifying whatever they brought in um to me again it, it seems like there are better models out there that we could learn from with an entire career in law enforcement what is your perspective on you know our drug policy and prisons are there things that you see that we could do better that maybe improve outcomes I think first I'd want to know more about what, when you ask about addiction, which addictions? Are you asking to keep it limited to drugs and alcohol or other addictive behaviors? And because drugs and alcohol, drugs specifically, uh, the illicit drugs more specifically, uh, meaning non-prescription, do tend to be criminalized and have been for decades uh, going back predating President Nixon, he declared the war on drugs. But uh, before him, uh, Henry Anslinger Mm -hmm. uh, really set the tone on saying that marijuana was the scourge of American society, and there's a racist undertone that went with that. Absolutely. And uh, the war on drugs was just declared over just not too long ago, maybe a decade or so ago. whatever was fueling that concept of the war on drugs, much of my police career, a big chunk of my police career was working uh, in narcotics, chasing traffickers and street dealers. And uh, early on preceding that even uh, was uh, arresting people off the streets for being under the influence of narcotics, specifically narcotics, heroin more specifically. uh, And criminalizing something that was actually a mental health Problem didn't know that as a cop. I know that now. That my approach with addictions is that it's useful. That our addictions serve a function for us, and it's frequently a dysfunctional coping strategy. And the addiction, the reason I started off with addicted to what is we can be addicted to alcohol, drugs. We can be addicted to CrossFit. We can be addicted to workouts, to eating, to spending all sorts of things that ultimately they help us feel better yeah and it's to relieve whatever it is that we're carrying with us and very often it's a cumulative effect of lifelong stressors or lifelong traumas rarely is it going to be one thing it'll Mm -hmm. be a cumulative uh, buildup over the lifespan i love it thank you for that yeah and it's interesting i had a a firefighter ashley schwamberger and it's tragic she lost her her very young son to cancer and crossfit was her addiction that was filling the void to the point where she basically burnt out 
So, yeah, I mean, you can have drugs, alcohol, but you can have infidelity. You can have porn. You can have CrossFit, eating, you know. There's so many. Um, and I think that's the problem is that when we demonize and criminalize you know, addicts, then you just, there's a spiral downward then. And I've had um, João Gulau, who's the guy that spearheaded the decriminalization in Portugal on the show. Amazing. And have you read Johan Hari's book, um, uh, Chasing the Scream? No. He talks a lot about decriminalization and, and how this whole thing is a mental health issue. And again, dealers, smugglers, fuck those guys. <laughs> you know, they are, you know, making the situation worse. Those are the criminals we need to face. But the moment we turn an addict into a criminal, now they have a felony, you know, now they're in prison. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's just compounding it. So it's very interesting and refreshing to hear you have seen that after your career now as a counselor, because I agree with you completely. I mean, that seems to be the way that we really truly have a war on drugs is have a war on mental health. So I'm, as I'm hearing you describe that and what we're talking about here is earlier on, I'm, I named fear. Uh, my sense is often it's fear that starts to drive programs, systems, et cetera, into uh, what happens if we see something and we don't like it. Well, what do we do? We lock it away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be that most states had uh, large mental health institutions to treat mental illness. Uh, There's a major change that occurred in California where they did away with those in the 70s. So now the prisons house the mentally ill. Uh, but we're talking about public safety. Well, public safety come from the same population as the people that are in prisons. Uh, not unusual that a, an officer or a firefighter will say that they have a family member sometimes a close family member, sometimes a distance family member who has gone the other direction and uh, is now sitting in prison. Interesting. And I I have a son sitting in prison. Oh, you do? I do. I'm so sorry. And what, so again, I hope, please stop if if this is too personal. What do you think took him down that road? We're taking a moment while Ben's stomach yeah, wants to I'm chime in. Happy, <laughs> After that very hard hit. <laughs> it's and we'll get back to you in just a second, I promise. But. <laughs> Take your time. <clears throat> yeah. So um, my wife and I, I, I had mentioned earlier that my wife and I adopted two kids uh, in the early 90s. So they were brothers. Uh, they were seven, six and seven when, when we met them. Uh, so the older one, uh, he's the one that's just now in prison. Uh, he's turning 27 this year. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a lifetime of trauma for him. Uh, he had already carried a, a lot before we met him. Uh, we haven't seen him in many years. Uh, he's been living on the streets and struggling, doing the best he can, and in and out of the local jail system in the community that he's been in. and. Yeah, so uh, it's a lifetime of trauma that he carries with him that has, has taken him on that path. Mm-hmm. So just speak, touching on the prisons before we switch back to Ben, another guy I had on was um, Tom Eberhardt, who's the governor of Bastoy Prison in Oslo. Um, and very different model. They This is an island off Oslo, so they're able almost, you know, like, um, I'm forgetting that was the one in, uh, Alcatraz it's kind of like that model 
But instead of prisons, they have a community. They're guards. They've lost their freedom. You know, they have to take a ferry there. But they have houses. And these prisoners live together. They have to cook. They have to clean. You know, they have, they have jobs that they go to every day. And from, again, a layman's point of view, it seems so much more... Uh, it seems to set up setting for success. Like one day these people are going to get out. Your son's going to get out. You know, obviously it's a great thing. You want them to get out and then, you know, thrive in society, be a great neighbor to wherever community they come back to and never freaking go back to prison again. But the Philadelphia model that we have where we lock them away, it's the same in England, same in a lot of places. You know, there's, how do you rehabilitate when you, you you're not, creating that environment you know so so many of these people either reoffend or you know are probably not well received in their community anymore and i find that fascinating as well if if our prison population has grown from 350,000 in the 70s to 2.3 million today is it working so comparing prison models just recently i had an opportunity to visit a prison and uh, be escorted through some of the yards and one of the observations I made to the person that was given the escort is, was, where's all the green? Mm-hmm. There was no green. It was, in other words, there was no natural environment. Concrete present. and sand. Concrete and sand and dirt and then uh, bars or, or whatnot. And I'm sitting with that, and the response I got was, well, in name some green artifact that was painted on a wall or something, but it wasn't nature. Contrasting to the prison you're describing in Oslo where it's emulating real life. It's their living as humans who are paying a price for their crimes versus being caged and uh, housed. Uh, Not too different than the enclosures that we keep elephants at the zoo. Mm -hmm. And what I I try and highlight, because I I mean, there's there's dispatches, there's... You know, the nurse and, and, and doctor ER community, and there's so many other professions associated with what this project is about. But the the prison staff, they are also in prison for 12 hours a day. They don't get to see daylight for 12 hours a day. And knowing what I know now about sleep deprivation and the circadian rhythms, how how detrimental it is to mental health when you're not even seeing daylight for most of the day. Yeah, you just named several key uh, factors that uh, uh, are important for our mental health. Uh, The circadian rhythms, the sleep deprivation, daylight, uh, the containment, the wear and tear, the the separation that happens in, at least that has to happen in an American prison to keep the guards separate from the the inmates, fuels that ussing and numbing which strikes us at the core of our humanness. And uh, whether it's in a prison or whether it's a police officer on the street or a firefighter or a paramedic, when that separation becomes too great is when we start to lose uh, the milk of human kindness mm-hmm. for, for ourselves or for others. And it shows up in families and relationships. And uh, ultimately, the, the final would be uh, self-harm. Mm-hmm. 
All right, well, I'm going to move it back to Ben so we can get him in, and then we'll we'll awesome. combine this this now. But it, that's what I was talking about when we said about tangents in the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, it is. Yeah. It's brilliant. But thank you as also for you know being candid. Um, so Ben, mm. let's talk about June twenty fourth. 2015 i know it's, we're kind of like bam let's no, do it <laughs> yeah it's great uh my uh collision course with dr foreman so um i was running medical aid standard medical aid one that every firefighter has run a thousand times in their career maybe more um it was a drunk intoxicated male at a trolley stop on a wednesday 4 p.m in the afternoon in san diego it was a beautiful day and we arrived on scene there are trolley security guards there they're armed uh they tell me hey we've got a drunk a drunk passenger that is you know falling all over the place he's he's hammered um and so you know we went to work uh complacent i was very complacent i was bored you know this call came in and just reading the notes on the call you know it practically said go babysit a drunk guy until an ambulance can come take him so i was not on my game i was very kind of blase fair about the whole thing and and going to do the minimum I can to make sure this guy's vitals are good and then load him on the gurney and send him away. And that's kind of where my head was at and my crew was at, you know, we're all bordering on bur- burnout. I was on the busiest engine in the city and we were averaging 25 to 30 calls a shift. We had already been at the trolley stop three times that day. So just, you know, I mean, everything's working against us as far as just being alert and prepared and aware so uh, we we brought the basic gear to take vitals and waiting for the ambulance to arrive is essentially what the plan was. Uh, this guy's you know he's drunk, but he's he's all his vitals are good. You know he's got nothing going on, no no other problems except excessive alcohol. What I didn't know is there had been a, another homeless man, a bystander who who was trying to help. He wanted to be a part of the, of this man's care. And the security guards had tried to move him away from the scene and they had um, really con- become confrontational with this guy. And this guy was was very, uh, very stubborn, very, you know, just very angry individual. I think in general, he was very angry. He was a um, very big gentleman. Very too, big. Ge- yeah. Six foot four, uh, 230 pound. Um, uh, just. Yeah, homeless guy. What, what I didn't know again at the time is this guy was a felon, uh, you know, an ex-felon, and he's living on the streets. And, and just I, I think overall he, he just didn't – he wanted respect and, and didn't feel respected by the security guards. And he was he wanted to help. He, he wanted to, you know, be a, a good person and, and save this drunk guy. So when we arrived, I interacted with this bystander, and he was trying to tell me, you know, everything he learned about this guy, about this drunk male. And I – I placated him. I listened to his turnover. It wasn't all that helpful. You know, he wasn't speaking our language and he wasn't giving me the the down and dirty essentials. But I, I listened to him for about 30 seconds. And then I said, you know, hey, I, I appreciate everything you're telling me. I'll take it over from here. And he was surprisingly nice. And he said, okay. And he grabbed his backpack and he walked away. And he walked around behind me. And in my thought, okay, out of sight, out of mind, like he's gone. And now I'm going to take care of this drunk guy. So I'm talking to the drunk guy. My partner's talking to the drunk guy. What I didn't see is this homeless man, this this bystander, had been going had gone at it with these trolley security guards for probably a good 20 minutes prior to our arrival. We had walked into this scene and kind of, we had like, you know, 
I don't know the word I'm looking for, but but dispersed and 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 kind of got in the middle of this and and it calmed everything down. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, as soon as we took over, he he's kind of standing on the outskirts uh, watching us work, and he starts chirping at the security guard, uh, one of the security guards, and there were five of them on scene, and the security guard was bit right and and was I mean they've been going at it for twenty minutes, so both of them their blood's kind of boiling, they're still pretty pissed off, and so. He re-engages with the security guard and it kind of boils up again. Uh, my captain ends up getting in the middle of this and goes, hey, man, you know, talking to the bystander, you got to get away from us. You need to give us some space. Let us work. We'll take care of this guy. Mm-hmm. And now we're thinking of a scene safety issue. Exactly. Exactly. And my, and my captain's doing a good job. He's protecting us and helping us with this protective bubble so we can do our thing. And, and this guy, this bystander gets in my captain's face, starts poking him in the chest, starts yelling at him, you know, and, and cussing at him. And my captain goes, hey, man, you need to back up, like give us space. And he pushes this guy back and the guy trips over a park bench. Now, we've only been on scene about 90 seconds. We don't know about this 20 minute, you know, cauldron just waiting to explode. And so he pushes this guy over and that's it, right? Like there it is, like this guy sees red. So he hops up. And he immediately attacks a security guard and starts beating him up. Now, my captain's confused, right? Because my captain's the guy that pushed him over. And the guy immediately just starts beating up security guard. And my captain's like, what is happening? And so, I hear the commotion. I turn around and I see this, this bystander beating up security guard. I don't know about the 20 minutes of, of frustration. I don't know that my captain's pushed this guy over. I've only been on scene 90 seconds. The last time I talked to this guy, he was fairly cooperative, trying to help. So I'm confused. I don't know why we're fighting. And so I run over to get in this fight and uh, I I get between this security guard and this bystander and I break up the fight. And my thought is I need to rescue the security guard because he's beating him up pretty bad. And I'm in rescue mode. I'm in save mode. So I, I push these two guys apart to separate them. And I actually first make eye contact with the security guard and I go, dude, are you okay? Like, you just got punched in the face like five times. Like, are you all right? And he was confused and a little dizzy, but he's like, yeah, I'm okay. But what happened in that split couple seconds is as I broke those guys apart, I gave this bystander an opportunity to kind of regroup and now he rearms. And so he, he uh, reaches into his back pocket. He pulls out a knife, but he keeps the knife hidden behind his back. And, and now I, I turn my attention to this man and it's one-on-one. So what was nine on one is now very quickly one on one, and and everything is just moving at the speed of speed of light. And I, I see this guy's face, and I can tell he is he's got a different look in his eye that I've ever seen before. And I immediately recognize I'm in real trouble. And so I try to back up, and I'm trying to talk this guy down as fast as I can. You know, I'm going, "Hey man, calm down. Like I don't know what's going on, but you know, you remember me from 12 seconds ago? You know, I'm like, what is happening? And he looks at me, and and he's just got this cold look in his face, and and he says, I got you now, motherfucker. And I just remember going, well, that can't be good, right? Like, that's not good. So I try to back up and I run into a, a railing, a guard. There's a guardrail that separated the trolley security, trolley riders from pedestrians. And so I back up and I run into this, this railing and I run out of room. And I just remember this panic, like, oh, God, I'm in trouble. And uh, he came running at me, gets real close and just starts stabbing me. Um, I didn't know he had a knife. I didn't know he was stabbing me. I thought he was punching me in a really weird way. Um, turns out later I learned it was a prison shank. He was 
he had been trained in prison on how to shank a guard. So you guys were talking about prisons earlier. And I was starting to break into a sweat. Um, <laughs> you get triggered. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. But he had learned in prison how to shank a guard. And so he was shanking me like he would shank a prison guard. Mm-hmm. That's he was going around the vest. Going around the vest, yeah. So yeah. he hit me low, like just above my belt line. He hit me in my armpit. And then he went for my head. And it wasn't again until after the trial that I learned that that was yeah below the vest in the armpit where there is no vest and then in the head mm-hmm. and the fact that he was hiding the knife shows right. you that's someone right. who knows how to use the knife, right. not not like hollywood holding it in front Correct. of you threatening which you know i i on a separate note i've trained in martial arts most of my adult life and this was nothing like anything we trained for you know this guy was cold calculating very talented uh and just ruthless and i just I'd never seen anything like that before. So I just got my ass handed to me. Um, he stabbed me twice. And then he, when he stabbed me in the chest, he punctured my uh, lung. He broke my rib. And when he pulled the knife out of my chest, he actually went to stab me in the head. But it knocked the wind out of me. And so I actually doubled over from having the wind knocked out of me. And he missed my head by less than an inch. I mean, the knife went through my hair. Um, so he barely missed my head. Like he, he could have easily killed me. I, mean, I would be dead. And my partner uh, saw the guy punching me. Uh, it was very fast, so he didn't see the knife, but he just saw the guy punching me. So he jumps in and tackles the guy and knocks him to the ground, lands on top of him, but the guy still had the knife. So now he's just stabbing my partner in the back. Uh, he stabbed him three times. This is Alex, who actually never got stabbed, as we were talking earlier. Yes, correct. Never got yes. any credit for any Exactly. <laughs> Alex, Alex does not get a lot of, a lot of credit, you know, because unfortunately the video, um, there was a video that one of the security guards was wearing a body camera and the whole thing's caught on tape. And you can see me getting stabbed. You don't see Alex getting stabbed. Um, so, you know, I a lot of people know me and they know my story. And, of course, I travel the country and I share my story. And so people are always giving me credit. And usually Alex is standing right next to me. He doesn't get any credit <laughs> at all. And it's it's been a fun uh, running joke for us. I tease him a lot. Yeah. So I've, I've started teasing him. I'm like, man, I don't know if you did get stabbed because I... Just nobody else seems to know. So maybe it didn't happen. He gets pretty frustrated. But. So you so you got stabbed, you know, broke broke a rib, punched yep. the lung. Yep. Let's talk about Alex. What were his injuries? So he took three to the back, uh, missed his spine. Uh, same general area, but uh, he took two to the high shoulder. Um, luckily, it didn't puncture his lung. Uh, it didn't hit any major arteries, thank God. Uh, but the security guards ran over, and in their attempt to pepper spray the assailant, they pepper sprayed Alex as well. So I, we have, a again, another running joke of who got it worse. Uh, I had a punctured lung and a broken rib. He had three stab wounds, but he also got pepper sprayed. So I actually tend to give him credit. I think he got it way worse than you me. You got a little blue-on-blue blue action. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, those security guards were wearing guns, and, and I've heard people say, you know, if I had had that gun, you know, I would have shot the guy. And I'm like, man... It was so fast, and that knife was wasn't seen until after we'd both been stabbed five times. But I think if anybody pulled a gun, I probably would end up shot and stabbed, you know, because it was just incredibly close quarters, lightning fast. I don't think there was any time whatsoever for drawing a gun. There's just no way. Um, but the you know the aftermath is he's pepper sprayed, he's blind, and he's bleeding. I'm bleeding. I can't breathe. You know, I, I could immediately tell as my lung collapsed that I had a pneumothorax. And so I, it was just pure panic. And, uh, you know, we called for help. PD was amazing. Fire department was amazing. I mean, everybody showed up lightning fast, but still that wait, waiting for help and both 
being kind of helpless to help each other and to fix our own wounds. Um, I mean, maybe 30 seconds, but that is a lifetime when you are, you know, essentially mm-hmm. bleeding to death. Which is why people scream at me, like, why did it take you so long? Exactly. And it actually didn't. Yes. But the perception of time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And everything slows way down and just, you know, the the panic of just, and, and knowing as a medic, a pneumothorax turns into a tension pneumothorax and kills you. But I don't know how long I have, right? And so as I'm breathing, I'm trying to calculate in my own head, is my breathing getting shallower? Is it getting worse? You know, and just that, you know, if I don't, it, it, one of the things that truly bothers me about that call is, you know, the, the saying is on an airplane, if the mask drop, put the mask on yourself and then help the person next to you, you know, because you can't, you can't help somebody if you go unconscious. So Alex is sitting there bleeding and he can't see. And I know I need to help his, I need to stop the bleeding, but I can't breathe. And I know that I need to seal the wound with a three-sided occlusive dressing, right? Or my my pneumothorax could turn into a tension pneumo. Yep. And so I remember thinking, man, if I don't help myself, I'm not going to be able to help Alex. But then I remember thinking, I don't want to be the guy that lives, saves himself while his partner bleeds to death. And so I was just stuck in this, like... I'm not going to help myself. I'm going to help him, but I can't help him because I can't breathe. And and that 30 seconds of waiting for help, you know, I'm just going through that over and over in my head, like, you know, just panicked, not thinking clearly, not helping anyone. I mean, it's just very frustrating. That whole thing is very frustrating. Yeah. Now, who was it that tackled the guy in the end? Well, Alex tackled and then uh, my captain jumped and then the security guards jumped. Okay. And so it was a pile of bodies for all holding him down. Uh, they pried the knife out of his hand and they got the knife away um, and then held him there until PD could come and get him in cuffs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Alex absolutely saved my life. If he hadn't tackled that guy first and taken those additional knife wounds, uh, that guy would have stabbed me in the head and I'd be I'd be dead. So, so this is a world exclusive right now. Alex is actually getting credit. Yes, so he is. Which, there we go. I don't know. It's going to ruin our <laughs> joke. I, I want to. I like the, the running joke. It's too late. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dang it. We'll let it out. So thank you, Alex. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Alex Walbert, for saving my life. There we go. Beautiful. All right. So obviously that physically at that moment horrendously traumatic. Yeah. What was the journey out of that like? So uh, getting rushed to the hospital and then the doctor on the trauma table saying, hey, man, I got to give you a chest tube. And I, I've seen chest tubes given. I'm sure you have too. Uh, you know, they bring people back from the dead. I mean, that is so painful to watch. And so I knew it was going to be painful. And I told the doc, you know, you got to knock me out, man. Just d- don't let me have to experience this awake. And the doc refused. He said, no, I need you awake for this. And so four of my own people, my firefighters, held me down and they did a procedure with, you know, I mean, there was local anesthetic while the doc sliced me open with a scalpel and then shoves his finger in to clear the the pleural space, right? And then takes a, a garden hose that says Home Depot on the side and shoves it into your chest. I mean, good God, it was way more painful than a knife wound. Uh, so that was pretty traumatic. Pain meds kick in and then I... I think I rode a unicorn up to the up to the recovery floor, <laughs> which was nice. And I spent three days in the hospital uh, with a chest tube, and they were just monitoring to make sure my lung was holding air. And uh, when they said, yeah, okay, your lung is holding air, then they pulled the tube, they stitched me up, and they sent me home. And, and they, you know, they said, look, here's like 
two, three weeks worth of Percocet, Oxycodone, Oxycontin, heroin, um, just every kind of great pain med. And then the doc, I remember saying, look, man, these stitches will come out three, four weeks. And then, you know, as long as your lungs holding air, you're going back to work. Uh, and I, I was thinking, cool, like, great. This will be awesome. Um, the guy in the lower, just above my belt, he missed my kidney, but he severed a nerve in my back. So I have no feeling in my lower back. But I mean, of all the places to lose feeling, like, you know, physically, it's, it's perfect. You know, like I can bend and twist and turn and lift. So that wasn't an issue. And then if my lungs holding air, go back to work. So I'm thinking, you know, in about a month, I'm going to be ready to go back and I'm going to have a great story to tell. After about 10 days at home, the pain meds, I'm starting to get addicted to pain meds. You know, I'm getting the opiate gut. So constipation and and I'm starting to like count the minutes for when, because it's like every four hours or whatever. And so I'm starting to like count the minutes to when I can take another one. And then I'm starting to maybe take a little early, you know, but, you know, just starting to play the game with the opiates. And I remember thinking, no, I'm not going to get hooked on this stuff. So after 10 days, I decided to quit cold turkey and I was just going to take ibuprofen and just gut it out because I didn't want to get addicted. What I didn't know is that the opiates were helping me kind of suppress my subconscious and allowing me to sleep. And so that very first night without opiates, the nightmare start. Um, these are the most visceral things I've ever experienced. Nightmare is really kind of a it's not the right word. Like there needs to be a different name for it. Um, but I could see in my, in my dreams, in my nightmares, I'm back at the trolley stop. I'm squared off with Stabby. Stabby is his name. Yeah. I call uh, the By bystander the way, Stabby. For a guy that tried to murder you, that's a really cute name. <laughs> that's a good I name. Like, yeah. I like Stabby. Well, his full name is Stabby Staverton, if that helps. <laughs> yeah. Does he live in Stabberville? He does. He's the mayor of Stabberville. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I have a nightmare where I'm back at the trolley stop and I'm squared off with Stabby. And, and I mean, I can see him clear. I can smell urine on the street. And while I'm up against the railing again, the trolley goes by behind me and the wind kind of rocks me on my feet. So it is unbelievably realistic. And this guy comes at me and he stabs me in the kidney again. Uh, but this time I capture his arm and I trap it so he can't get me in the chest. And I grab him by his ear and I trip him and I throw him on the ground. And I get on top of him. And I take his head and I kind of crack it against the pavement and it makes him go limp. Um, it doesn't kill him. It doesn't make him go unconscious. It just kind of takes the fight out of him. And then I remember thinking, you know, it's my turn now to hurt you. And so I decide the best way to do that is I'm going to bite off his face. And so while I'm holding him by his ears, I lean down and I sink my teeth into his orbit. And my bottom teeth catch on the underside of his skull. And I remember in my dream thinking, I'm not strong enough to bite through skull. So I better back up a little bit. So I kind of ease up and I capture just his eyebrow and I can feel his eyebrow on my tongue and I bite through his face and blood squirts in my mouth and I like rip a chunk of his face off and arterial spray hits my shirt and it's warm and it's wet and he's screaming and I start screaming and I'm screaming at him like, you know, ha ha, right? But I wake up screaming and I wake up and I'm just, my fists are still in his hair, you know, and I, I sit straight up. I can taste blood in my mouth uh, and my shirt is warm and wet, but it's from sweat. And of course, I sit straight up in bed screaming at the top of my lungs and my wife is in bed with me, but she's like 
pretending to be asleep. You know, she's like, terrified. God, right. Like, what was that? And I just, I feel like I've just murdered somebody. My heart rate is probably 150. My blood pressure is in my ears. My eyes are dilated. You know, I'm, my mouth is like cotton and I'm just having this adrenaline dump of murder. And so I go downstairs and I sit in the dark and I drink water and I'm awake for the rest of the day, right? Like you're not going back to sleep after that. And I remember having to change clothes because my whole, everything was just wet. And I thought, okay, that makes sense actually, right? Like a really bad event, really bad nightmare. Okay. I should have been ready for that. I wasn't, but okay. Makes sense. And so the next day, I mean, I just, I'm up watching TV and I'm waiting for the day to kind of die and I'm tired. But I go back to, to sleep the second night. Same nightmare. I gouge his eyes out. I rip his face off. I'm murdering this guy and I wake up screaming. Okay. Okay. Two nights, right? Like, I'll, fine. Awake for the rest of the day. Third night, same thing. Fourth night, same thing. Fifth night, same thing. Every night now, I rip this guy's face off. I wake up screaming, tasting blood in my mouth. And pretty soon I realize, like, okay, uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm not in a good place, right? Something's wrong. Um, I, I go maybe a week and a half without sleep, and I'm very anxious and very angry, and I, I don't know what to do, and I'm kind of panicked, and I, I'm not sure how to proceed. And I'm thinking, you know, my career, suddenly I'm not going to be going back to work as soon as I thought, and I don't know what to do. Um, and then the coolest thing happened is the video the the body cam of the of the attempted murder right of my attempted murder was released to the media and they played it on TV and I saw this my nightmare re- replay yes on television and then the coolest thing is you know when you're in an event like that your brain replays it in slow motion anyway so for weeks I'm replaying the fight in slow motion well the media if you've seen the video in real speed it's so fast you don't see the knife ever. So they slowed it down in slow motion so that anyone watching the news could see the knife going into my body. Well, they're playing it on TV at the same speed that I played in my head. And so it's like the most surreal thing. It's it's so cool, right? Just like, oh my God, it's like they reach into my head and they put my nightmare on television. Um, And then what I really appreciated, what I thought was cool is I had gotten dozens of calls and texts from guys on my job, you know, people I've known my whole life going, dude, are you okay? You know, that looked pretty gnarly. Well, the video gets released and now people are driving to my house and now they're knocking on the door and they're looking me dead in the eye and they're going, man, are you okay? And I realized at that point, after like my third visitor, you know, at my house, I'm like, man, these guys are asking if I'm mentally okay. Yeah. And Good I'm thinking, for them. Yeah. Yes. I'm very grateful to them. But also because that video got released, I remember thinking, you know what? I got to get out of jail free card. I can go get mental help and no one will make fun of me. My reputation will not be trashed. And I can't imagine anyone saying, I can't believe you need to go see a therapist for that. Right. Like, because the tape is wicked gnarly. You watch that knife go through my hair. You realize I almost died. And I remember thinking, this is awesome. Like, I can go get help. And my, and I, can still walk into a fire station with my head held high and no one will make fun of me. And I, I, I laugh at that a little bit because I think how scary is our stigma that you have to, not only you have to be attempted murder, but it's got to be caught on tape yeah. for other to see it, for me to feel comfortable 
talking about mental health. No one saw you get stabbed, bro. <laughs> right, right. Well, can you imagine if I, and I, you know, I show the video when I talk across the country, I show the video on stage and I really feel like it gives me the, the power to stand there and go, okay, now let me talk about my nightmares. And I always laugh. I'm, my number one fear is that the AV breaks down and I can't show the video because then I'm, I'm going to stand on stage in front of a bunch of people and go, I got stabbed and it, and it sucked. You know, let me talk about the nightmares. And I don't think anyone will, will have as much buy-in. You see that tape and you go, holy crap. Okay. I get it. I get it. Talk to me. And and so it's funny because I, I still rely on that video to give me street cred. Um, I, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about getting stabbed without people being able to see it because it's wicked. Mm-hmm. So um, when I felt like I got that get out of jail free card, then I found a whole new problem. I had no idea what to do with mental health. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know who to call. Our department didn't really have a program. Um, so I went the workers comp route and I called workers comp and the city sent me four names with phone numbers. That was it. The first guy I called had been retired for two years and was no longer taking people. That probably should have been a red flag for me. It wasn't. I just called the next number, right? Like, okay. And so I call this workers' comp therapist, a psychologist, and I go down to his office and I meet him. And first thing he says is, I'm excited to work with a firefighter. I've never worked with firefighters before. I work with car accident victims. And I went, doc, this is great. Like, I've never worked with a therapist before. I also work with car accident victims. Like, I'm looking for common ground, you know, like, let's do this. (laughs) And so this guy goes, okay, great. You know, so what's going on? And I said, well, I could tell you or I could show you. And I show him the video of the murder, the attempted murder. And he goes, my God, you know, that guy tried to kill you. And he said, so what's going on? I said, well, I'm having this nightmare where I chew his face off. And (laughs) knowing what I know now, like he was scared of me and I wish I had messed with him a little more. I didn't. And he said, well, Ben, if you're having trouble sleeping, the best thing to do is lay off the caffeine. Did he drop the mic and then walk out? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And I, I just remember thinking, well, this is stupid. Like, psychology is stupid. You know, this guy went to school forever and this is what he comes up with. Like, I'm pretty sure it's not the coffee in my stomach. It was the knife in my chest, you jackass, right? Like, and I'm I'm pretty frustrated. Uh, and I remember leaving his office very disheartened. and, and But I, I didn't know what else to do. And I so I kept going to this guy. I went to him for a couple of weeks and... You know, I told him, look, I'm really afraid that if you send me back to work too early and and he's the one guy keeping me from work, right? He, the medical doctors have cleared my lung. They've cleared, they said, look, you're never getting a nerve endings back in your back, but you can bend and twist and lift your lungs holding air. We're going to clear you to go back to work. And so this psychologist, this workers comp guy is the only one keeping me from, from going to work. And so I'm pleading with him in his office. Like you cannot send me back yet. You've got to fix me. And he said, well, Ben, you know, if you go back to work and you're finding it stressful, just don't go on any calls. Mic drops again. Mic drop again. Exactly. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, what? And, and so all of his advice is like, well, you know, you just try to get more sleep while you're at work. And I'm like, doc. And so I'm getting out of Kelly's schedule, right? And I'm showing him what a 24-hour shift is. And I'm telling him, you know, sometimes we get mandatory. And so I work two, three days in a row with no sleep. And, and he's like, well, that's not really good for your mental health. You should see a psychologist. <laughs> so to be to be fair, I I know this guy was trying his best. He just didn't get it. He didn't get it. 
and so I'm it's bad. Like I've gone over a month now with no sleep. I'm anxious. I'm jumpy. I'm angry. And it's at that point I'm sitting in the dark at two in the morning. I haven't slept that I, for the first time in my life, I understood suicide because I've never understood it. I could never get my head around it. I've never been able to put myself in, in those people's shoes that, you know, we run on these people that have attempted or, or committed and I can never get it. And, and again, being just kind of ignorant of the of how it works. For me, I could always see the light at the end of the tunnel. I could always say, well, today sucks, but tomorrow will be better. And, you know, as long as I can get to Saturday, I get to go to Disneyland with my family, right? Like whatever it is, like I can see a way out. But not having slept in a month, and I'm sitting there in the dark at 2 in the morning, and I'm trying to get to 201. And I'm just, I'm just concentrating on that, Right. And then I make it to 201 and I realize I got to get to 202. And there's just, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I can't see past the end of my nose. And I remember thinking, man, if I don't figure this out, if I don't find a way to sleep and recover from this, like I own a gun and I guarantee I'll sleep then. And that's a terrifying thought to creep into my head. And I've never, ever thought that way. And I just remember going, whoa, like, did I just contemplate suicide did that just come up into my head and so i remember thinking well there has to be a fix for this right and so you know peer support is a is a unbelievably invaluable tool that i never appreciated but as i'm sitting in the dark at two in the morning i I thought of a buddy of mine who was a firefighter he was a former cop he was a former chp officer he got in a gunfight and he killed a guy it was a legitimate shooting um, the guy shot at him with a 45 and my buddy shot back with a shotgun and he, he killed the guy and he was always very candid with me and we would talk about it, you know, um, over beers on day off. And he just, he said that at one point after the shooting, a, a police psychologist came and talked to him and, and outlined six months of his life. You know, look, you've been in the shooting. Let me tell you all the physical and mental effects you're going to have for the next six months. And the guy said, like clockwork, everything came true. And so peer support, I'm thinking, this is the one guy who will get it. He will understand me and he can help me. And so I went to him and I found him and he was working at a fire station. And I said, look, bud, I'm having these horrible mental effects. You know, I don't know what's happening. I said, will you please help me, you know, outline the next six months of my life for me. And he said, hey, man, I can't do that. But why don't you go see a police psychologist? And I remember thinking, well, that's brilliant. Like, yeah, shit, why didn't I think of that? So he gives me the number to San Diego PD's team of psychologists. And just a shot in the dark, a desperate, you know, Hail Mary. I call this company, this company called Focus in San Diego, and they have the police psychologist uh, contract. And so San Diego PD, these, these officers can go see this team of therapists um, as much as they want. It's like unlimited visits. It's just this ridiculously awesome program. And so I called and I talked to Dr. Mark Foreman, the guy sitting to my left and, uh, just tears, you know, I'm like, you got to help me. And he says, all right, man, you know, come down. And I said, look, here's the deal. I'm with a fire department. We don't have a contract with you. I can't workers comp won't pay this. My health insurance won't pay this. I'm on injury leave and I'm not getting enough money to ba- barely pay my mortgage. I don't know how I'm going to pay you. But I said, if you will keep a tally, a, a bill, I, if I can get back to work and I earn enough money, I'll pay that bill off. 
And he said, man, I don't care about money. I said, I'll see you for free. Just get in here. And I remember thinking, okay. And I was also, as I was driving down his office, I'm like, if this doesn't work, like I'm done, I'm done. And, uh, and so I cruised into his office and I met, I met this guy and, uh, right away, uh, he's a former cop. So he looks like a cop. He talks like a cop. Uh, right away. I liked him. Right. And, uh, he said, you know, you sound pretty bad on the phone. What's going on? And I said, well, I could tell you or I could show you. And I show him the video and he goes, my God, I got to try to kill you. And then he asked me, how are your nightmares? And I just can't even describe like the sense of relief. It's like, yes, like, yes. Cause this other guy I've been working with just doesn't get it. And then, I mean, he understood instantly what was bothering me. And I was just like, yes, like that's why I'm here. And he said, well, I can help you with those. He goes, they'll end on their own. Their nightmares will end. He goes, but I can help them end faster. And he said, why don't you step in my office? So 30 seconds of this guy meet him. I'm in his lobby and he's already proven to me instantly that he gets it uh, and that he knew what the problems were before I even had to say it. So um, I, I credit three people who saved my life. I credit Alex for jumping in and finally taking that knife. Yes. <laughs> Again, giving him credit. I hate doing that. Uh, but I credit my buddy, the peer supporter, the former cop. Um, his name's James Shadone. His nickname on our department is Shooter which is a great nickname. Um, and so I, I credit Alex, I credit Shooter for peer support because he listened and then he gave me the best advice ever. And then I credit Mark Foreman, uh, the therapist, for for giving me the right mental treatment. Yeah. So. We'll just interject for a second because mm -hmm. I want to obviously get to Mark. It is terrifying and I've heard this from several people now how me too. if you go to the wrong counselor, yeah. that could be it. It, it sets you back. It. it sets you way back. Mm -hmm. And I know so many people that say, well, I two things happen. One is they go to the therapist and the therapist tells them to lay off the caffeine. Or the second one, which is my favorite, and I've never done it, but I really want to. I've coined the term breaking a psychologist is where you start sharing your story and the therapist starts crying. Right. And then just says, I, I can't stop. You know, stop it. Stop it. And, and please leave my office. I don't want to hear anymore. And I really want to do that. I think that would be really fun to break somebody like that. But uh, those two recurring themes across the country are the the two most common things that happen. Yeah. When you find someone that doesn't know what they're doing. I had I had this real homicidal um, dreams that I was slicing people to pieces. And I went to see a counselor. And then once I stopped my caramel macchiatos, it all stopped. It's fucking great advice. <laughs> <laughs> caffeine caffeine it's a caffeine yeah <laughs> all right well let's bring mark in so from your perspective at this point let's let's kind of connect the dots connect the dots yeah um caffeine will always fuck up our <laughs> <laughs> not helpful as the mic drops <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> no and it's not a but it's and uh sleep Dysregulation goes with public safety. It's a nature of the beast of uh, shift work. Uh, Matthew Walker, a researcher up out of Stanford, just I think last year, maybe the year before, uh, 2018 probably, uh, published a book, uh, Why We Sleep. And he pretty candidly 
starts identifying what happens when we have sleep dysregulation. So caffeine is a, a major problem for that. So to hear that from anybody, anybody not to say cut the caffeine is probably not appropriately focused. However, we're talking about trauma and we're not talking about sleep dysregulation. We're not talking about dreams. It's the presenting problem. It's more of what fueled the dreams. And as I'm hearing this story of the dreams now, uh, I've I've heard the story many times, I'm pulling into my awareness that the brain does not like unfinished business. We need closure. Our brains need closure. And those dreams, as Ben was just describing them, are the brain's efforts to find closure to a horrific event. There was no closure. The The body, the self, Ben didn't have a chance to take care of business. And so the brain says, well, fine, I'll do it for you. It, it brings up a dream. Now, there are many dream theories out there that talk about why we dream, what they are, and all that stuff. And it really doesn't matter. It's when they're attached to trauma. It's trying to resolve the trauma, simply that, trying to resolve the trauma. But oftentimes, you know, uh, Ben and Alex and the rest of the crew, they show up in firefighter paramedic mode, and all of a sudden there's a role change. They're, they entered an improvisational play in a scene, and they were forced into a role they weren't prepared to play. Uh, regardless of the training and everything, it's like as we move in and out and we're thrown in the roles that we're not prepared to play, then it creates a challenge and then it leaves things unresolved. And uh, the sensory activation that Ben describes, the the intense uh, somatosensory presentation, the sweats, the uh, all of it, the tasting of the blood in a dream and everything else that was coming along with that, is simply the body and the mind and the psyche trying to make sense of what the fuck was that? What did you put me through? And which is the life of first responders. We take the body in this place. We say, come on, this is really cool stuff. This is why we do what we do. And the body goes, well, but we can die doing that. There's, there's, it's almost like there's a split, but there's not because uh, we go into it together as a team, in, in, an internal team. The mind, body, spirit is a real thing. Uh, so when it experiences an event and can't make sense of it, or the sense-making gets interfered with, and that's what happens when all of a sudden we're tossed in, in into a stage play that we had no idea what we're doing. As far as I'm here to save a life, and all of a sudden I'm having to defend my own life, that this doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the psyche tries to somehow deal with that. Right, so he comes in, you know, obviously you identify immediately and what's beautiful is that you had a career in law enforcement, you transitioned to become a counselor yourself. Um, what were the tools from your toolbox that you realized were, were going to help Ben specifically? Well, you know, one is <laughs> we certainly re- recall it a little differently. Uh, uh, but, you know, pretty much uh, it, it says Ben laid it out. Uh I think what I did is I tapped into my police experience and said, okay, I'm going to approach this as though this were a police officer who had been wounded. That, oh, yeah, this is what people do. They try to hurt us. So let's make sense of that. Uh, And, of course, that kind of a physical injury, the emotional injury, and, and all of that that comes with that 
is, well, this is outside the norm of even a firefighter experience or a paramedic experience or a cop experience. So this is going to be trauma. And trauma has some very, they're not so much predictable signs. I can't predict for any individual that they're going to experience this, 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 and this. However, nightmares are a, a consistent thing that comes up with it. Sleep dysregulation, uh, sleep loss, um, irritability, mood shifts, uh, thoughts of suicide if it goes on long enough. These are all, they start adding up to being the symptoms that add up to PTSD. Uh, and so just what the story he told me over the phone was enough to say, come on in because this amount of suffering, nobody deserves to have it. And it doesn't matter whether you got a contract or not. We can figure that shit out. Yeah. Well, that's that's a very human approach, too, because there are many, many medical practitioners that probably tell you, well, if you don't have insurance, then you have to call someone else. Right. And, you know, my approach had never been like that. And uh, with my even my education as a, as a therapist, uh, one of the things that comes with that is. We're, it's not an expectation, but it's an encouragement to do pro bono work. To say, well, come on in and we'll figure out, let's, let's just get you feeling better. Uh, isn't, it's not an, every, not an everyday occurrence. We don't advertise that way. Uh, it's not what we do. Uh, but in an extreme exceptional case, and this is an exceptional case, uh, my understanding is only two firefighters, Ben and Alex, in the history of the San Diego Fire Department to uh, incur that kind of an injury on duty. That's an extreme, unusual case. Many cops have been injured and shot and stabbed and stuff. And they're like, well, that that goes with the nature of being a cop. That nature of being a firefighter and paramedic, no. It's a different role. Yeah. All right. So then tell me about, I've heard this many times now, and it's funny because I heard it mentioned a while ago and then more recently I, I hear so many great results from it but EMDR and, and your experience with Ben specifically yeah. EMDR and a longer name for it is eye movement desensitization reprocessing a complex term to describe uh, what's going on is um, it's a therapy modality that was developed in the late 80s and is been researched now it's been studied it's becoming one of the mainstays for treating trauma and in essence i might oversimplify it but it's holding a memory bringing it together with a current thought emotion and body sensation and most of us have the ability to recall something from our past whether it was an hour ago or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago bring it into our awareness in great detail and feel it somewhere in the body. Uh, there will be a somatosensory activation that shows up in the body. So it's this bringing together those four elements, sitting with it and recalling it and processing it. There's an exposure that it's, uh, in other words, called exposure therapy. It starts to allow the brain to make more sense of it, to bring together those key elements of, oh, this is, this is merely a memory. It's not happening now. Mm -hmm. The body's safe. But in the meanwhile, the initial, because there's a, 
there's a it's like there's a hierarchy. This overly simplifies it. There's a hierarchy between our thoughts, our emotions, and body sensations. Body sensations are going to come out of the brain stem region of the brain. Some people refer to it as the reptilian brain. Uh, the emotions are coming out of the limbic region of the brain. It's much more complex than this, but uh, and then the thoughts, the prefrontal cortex, uh, the stuff that's responsible for our higher functions. When we bring them together and can process it together, we can make sense of whatever's happened with us. It's not unusual that we'll move to an event and one of these channels will be offline. Often in intense stress, the thinking parts of the brain go offline. That's because they're the evolutionarily they came online later, so they're the first to go. When we're under extreme stress, we just got to be able to react. We don't have to be able to think our way through it. Uh, so then later on, after it's all said and done now, they all come back online and the rest of the psyche saying, what the hell is going on here? I don't understand this. How did that happen? How, how is that I couldn't see that coming? And so then it starts creating questions. There's a, there, there are gaps in function and reasoning at that point. So EMDR helps us move through it, and inevitably it'll start to pull us around. It'll pull in other memories, other events, other traumas. And in other words, we start facing things that, oh, yeah, this this event here actually is challenging on my meaning as to who I am, why I exist. There will be some core belief that got overly compromised around this one event that doesn't make rational sense, but EMDR allows us to tease it out and flow through flow through it and, and examine it and then say, oh, yeah, there it is. Yeah. This is somehow connected to something that happened when I was a teenager or 10 years ago or when I was a young kid. It, it felt the same in the body. The body doesn't care. It'll send us a signal that, yeah, this feels just like that. So here, have some more of this. It's like it's happening all over again. All right. So, Ben, Mark was talking about his perception and experience um, with you as the the patient with the EMDR, I'd love to kind of flip the mirror around now and hear your experience. Obviously, you had regular counseling up to that point. What made EMDR so special for you? Yeah, well, it's it's funny. I I do travel the country and share my story mostly because I want to educate people on EMDR and what it is. Because of course, I had never heard of it. And so when Dr. Foreman's like, all right, we're going to do EMDR, I was unclear as to what that entailed. And so his first thing is, all right, you know, sit with your feet flat on the ground. And then I want you to follow my fingers back and forth in front of your eyes. And to me, that just screamed hypnotism. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to get hypnotized. You know, I'm thinking he's going to make me, you know, crow like a rooster or something, you know, and 10 days later. So I just was very <laughs> reluctant and not excited. I'm like, you know, what is this weird thing? And, um, he said, you know, just trust me and, and follow my fingers. And so I, <clears throat> I, I remember he had me share about the first five minutes of the story, you know, uh, before my stabbing. So I recall, you know, was in the kitchen and we were prepping for dinner and then the tones went off and me and my partner looked at the tones and we saw on the ticker tape that the, um, you know, that the call, the address was the trolley stop and so we kind of groaned and then we slid down the fire pole. We got in the rig and we read the notes that we're going to babysit a drunk guy. And we kind of groan again. And then we're driving to the call. And then he said, okay, stop. 
don't say anything. I just want you to think about that and follow my fingers. And so, you know, I'm sitting there quietly thinking about being on the rig, driving to this call that almost cost me my life. And he's waving his fingers back and forth in front of my eyes, like a sobriety test. And I, you know, we did that for 10, 15 minutes. I didn't understand what he was doing or why it worked. Uh, all I know is that, you know, we went through about half of the call that first session and I left his office and I was driving home and I remember feeling better. And I just thought, man, I think he Miyagi'd me, you know, I think somehow wax on wax off. I've learned karate. Like I don't, how did, what the hell did he just do? Um, and I remember being home and, and I slept a little bit better that night for the first time in months and, and just was blown away by this weird voodoo that, that he was doing to me. So, uh, when I came back to his office, I was excited for the next session and, and was eager to do EMDR. Um, and, and the way he described it to me so that I could understand it again, you know, a cop talking to a fireman. So he's using little words and short sentences. And he's basically saying, you know, as you're waving your fingers back and forth in front of your eyes, you're activating both sides of your brain, the right side and the left side. And so you're activating both logic and emotion. And so as you're revisiting this call, you're using both sides of your brain and you're, you're able to process the call completely and fully. Um, and, and that's it. It's so eerily simple, uh, that, you know, after maybe three or four sessions of doing MDR, I felt great. And I, I definitely felt the symptoms of PTSD subsiding, you know, and each and every time I left his office, I felt better and better and better. And I was sleeping more and more and more. Um, and then it occurred to me at some point, you know, I felt like I had processed the stabbing pretty well and I was feeling really good and, and contemplating, you know, being ready to go back to work. And then it occurred to me, man, why don't we EMDR all the other calls, right? All the, all the ones I've amassed in my career that have bothered me. And so I started thinking of them. I wrote them down on a piece of paper. And when I came back to his office, I said, you know, instead of EMDRing the stabbing, can we EMDR the little girl that sees to death? And can we EMDR the the woman that jumped off a building and landed at my feet, you know, can we MDR the woman who was raped and, and you know what I mean? And, and I just was like, I want to, I want to offload these. Um, and so we did, and we processed a few more calls and I've never felt better in my life and more confident and more ready to get back to work. And, and the reason I want to share EMDR with everyone is, you know, if James, you and I run a call, somehow you're in Florida, I'm in San Diego, but if we ran a call together and there was a, a dead child, I, I'm just going to set up an EMDR appointment and go take care of that the next week. And if you don't know about EMDR, you're going to carry that dead kid with you the rest of your career. And, and so for me, I feel like I have this ace up my sleeve. Now I have a, a treatment for these horrible calls. I can just offload them right away and not carry that emotional baggage with me. Yeah. And it just, it's crazy because I've I've been exposed to this area now, this mental health side for about really about three years when I started kind of throwing my hat in the ring as a podcaster and then the Dark Side channel and the video and some other things. But the EMDR really only I heard it mentioned a couple of times in passing, but it really only came into the arena about six months ago for me and, and started learning about it, hearing Dr. Tanya Glenn talking about it and um, Drew Stokes and Chris Fields of their success. And like you said, 
if if it's that effective and that inexpensive, then why isn't there a, a fireworks display going off in our right. associated right. profession saying we have the answer? Well, that's right. And that's, you know, the reason I've been traveling all over the country is, you know, I'm not particularly excited to show people the video of me getting stabbed and talking about nightmares. But I get very excited when I get to tell people about the treatment because and, and here's what I've learned, James. I've I've traveled all over the country now. I've spoken to fire departments of all shapes and sizes. And and I've been in rooms as small as 20 people and shared my story. And I've been in a room with 3,000 people. But but even 20 people, what I've learned is when I share my story with EMDR, someone in that room has used EMDR and loves it. Someone else in that room has never heard of it. And so what I've learned is, you know, the fire department, James, if, if a firefighter gets hurt in Florida – we, we learn about it in San Diego, right? Like we create a, a fact finding and we, we put together a breakdown of, of how that person got hurt and what mistakes were made. And then we share it across the country so that other fire departments can learn and hopefully not make the same mistake. So we're very good about sharing information with physical injuries, but mental injuries no one talks about. And so this EMDR treatment is like the best kept secret among those that have struggled mentally. And so others who are just starting to struggle don't have any idea that it's even out there. <clears throat> and so if we could just get the word out to every department, every person, you know, hey, this there's a treatment out there that can absolutely help you um, deal with our profession. I, yeah, I'll, I'll take down the Hollywood sign and and put up an EMDR sign if I have to to try to get the word out. Yeah, well, especially as I hear, I mean, it it is a somewhat simple skill to be taught, you know, in in that world, in that clinician world. And I know that some of the people listening that are in more rural areas, they may not have access to the ganglion blocks and some of these, you know, more advanced procedures that you hear some people having success. But this seems like, you know, if it's if it's distributed and, and advertised enough in the mental health world that your rural practitioner can do exactly the same as someone in the middle of LA or New York. Absolutely. Um, and, and I've learned, and this is important too, you know, there are therapists who specialize in, in children and there are therapists that specialize in marriage and family. And, um, there are some that specialize in drug and alcohol addiction. Um, you know, finding therapists that specialize in trauma and understand the first responder world is, is huge. That, that is a challenge that, everyone across the country is facing and then to find a, a trauma therapist, someone that's used to first responders and is EMDR trained. Um, I really feel like that's kind of a, a unicorn at this point, you know, there aren't very many. So, um, one other aspect I've been working on with other therapists is trying to train clinicians across the state of California in, in, you know, trauma and then understanding how important it is to do EMDR. And, and there are a lot of therapists out there that don't know about EMDR either. So um, it's a it's a mountain we're climbing, but we'll get there, right? One step at a time. Yeah, well, I'm actually about to uh, bring my son to a facility here, a, a mental health facility that specializes in children. So it's the kind of go-between from DCF and foster care. I mean, it's a, it's a charity, but it's a great, great facility, and they do EMDR on children, and I really want to get my little boy to address some of the things that I know he deals with, whether it's divorce, there were some other things happening um, in the other household when he was younger uh, that I know you know he needs to address. So I'm very, very excited to see how it affects him as well. I, I think he'll absolutely love it, and I, I hope, hope it works well for him. Um, 
so yeah, that that's cool. And and I think it'll be cool for you to see the difference, you know, if if he gets that help. I think it'll be cool to see as a parent the transition. Yeah. Now, what about the the longevity? Because I've heard, I want to say some of the people were like, I had it done. Someone's like, you know, I feel like I need to go back again and just, just do it again. What did you find as far as the, 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 you know, how, how long you stay feeling great again, or if there's a need for a kind of top up for lack of a better word? Well, I definitely would like to think of it as a tune up. Um, <clears throat> you know, for me, I, I go back to work. Uh, I'm not carrying the baggage that I was before, you know, by EMDRing those, those calls that always bothered me, but I'm now an active firefighter running more calls. So, you know, there's still horrible trauma that we see. So I feel like, you know, I run one or two more bad ones that, that bother me. I know now what the signs are, you know, I get irritable or I can't sleep or, you know, I'm, I'm short tempered with my wife. Uh, if I start noticing that, then I know, okay, the job's starting to get to me again. It's time to go in and, uh, for another tune up. Um, but I'll tell you that, you know, the, the stabbing is not something that I dwell on. And, you know, the, the 12 year old that died and the woman that jumped off the building, I, you know, those don't come back, uh, to bother me, but I'm just adding more trauma now. So, um, that's what I would think a, a tune up is for really, this is a question I think for, for Mark, you know, do people, do you find people come back to redo it for the same call or I'm, I'm curious? Yeah, well, th that's an excellent question because um, it's not so much that coming back in for EMDR to tune up the call. It's more of as the trauma continues to shift in us, as our memories and our experience of whatever we've gone through starts to shift. And that's what happens over time. It may settle down for a while, and then months later, years later, it comes back again. Uh, for instance, I have my own experience that occurred way back in 1984 that I've it sat dormant for decades, and then once I started doing therapy with other people, uh, it, it came into my own office. It was such a major thing. It was a massacre shooting that happened down in San Isidro in uh, 1984. Uh, the McDonald's shooting. The McDonald's shooting. 21 people died in that, including the shooter. And it laid dormant for me. And then as I started interacting and it came into my office uh, three times in the same week from three different directions, decades later from other people, it activates my own. So I go, okay, well, maybe I ought to go revisit this. And so EMDR is a, a useful tool to be able to help people do that. But it also along the way that people learn to have their own skills so that they can settle down their own experiences on their own. And if necessary, they can go visit their EMDR therapist and uh, follow the fingers or hold the little paddles that they can hold in their hands or there's some other ways of doing that bilateral stimulation. That's the right brain, left brain stuff Ben was describing. So, yeah, it's it's the nature of tra traumatic experiences. Uh, we don't know when they'll revisit us and what they tend to do once we can turn toward them and reprocess them is they revisit with a little bit less, uh, uh, intensity. And for some, they can actually turn into where they're merely a memory. Now they're not an upsetting memory. Uh, but when the upset shows up, the upset doesn't tend to be disabling and, uh, uh, dropping us to, the, to our knees or stopping us in our tracks. 
Yeah, no, it's it's so good to hear. I've, I've been very lucky, and I want to say, honestly, and I've talked about this before, I really think that doing this podcast and talking about all these different things has been my therapy. I mean, it really has. I got to talk to some amazing people, including clinicians like you. Um, and even though I'm not walking down specific roads, I, I just I feel like all those bad calls are in the very back. But I did have one time where I had what well, you know a trigger response, and it was crazy. I was in Disney, and um, there was a, it was a very very hot day. A lady was pushing her daughter um, in the stroller, and so she had like a little blanket over, which looked like the blanket that was strewn strewn over a child that was killed in a horrendous wreck years ago when I was in California that was about the same age as my little boy. And I flashed just for a second. And it wasn't crippling. I didn't break down. But I, I told my wife, I'm like, I just need to sit down for a second. I just had this adrenal dump. Um, and so for me, if, if I was going to address any calls, that would definitely be the first one. But the rest of them are, I mean, they really are tucked in the back. And I think that, you know, when you have the good sleep, good exercise, good, you know, um, nutrition, and you're able to offload the trauma and have a good, you know, number of tribes around you, then it's comfortable in that long-term memory. But that if if you are broken down in all those different areas and you're getting triggered and, and all those calls are flashing in the front of your mind, you know, it's no wonder some of these men and women get to the point where they can't cope anymore. So to have a tool like that that will take that, you know, very, uh, uh, what's the right word? The, 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 the flashbacks that are happening right now, very vivid, and then put them in that kind of dull, long-term memory side. I mean, why would we not shout from the rooftops about this and try and help anyone out there who's got that kind of trauma start to deal with it? Yeah, that's uh, a great example. Thanks for sharing that example of your experience uh, and your own trigger there. Because um, what can start to happen is we start to have more and more awareness. And what I'm hearing you describe was your own awareness. Oh, wait a second. I just got triggered. I had an adrenal dump. I need to sit down. Versus the adrenal dump comes in. And next thing you know, we want to run and we're hauling ass out the, out the gate or uh, we're snapping on somebody. We're we're having an, an extreme reaction and that might be an example of how with awareness, Oh, I know what this is. Wow. It's here. I need to sit down. Uh, and it, that awareness really is allowing it to continue to process. We can keep putting more meaning to it. And that's ultimately all the brain wants to do is it wants to put meaning to our experiences. Uh, and we go, well, where did the trigger come from? Uh, Sometimes we don't even know. Sometimes it's obvious seeing something that looks like it, smelling it, tasting it, hearing it. But sometimes it's very benign. We don't know what the trigger was, but the body senses it and gives us a full-fledged adrenal dump with cortisol and everything else. And uh, this complex neurochemical response inside the body. And now we're having to catch up cognitively saying, what the hell is this? And we may not have a name for it. I just recently heard a colleague, I've never met him, uh, he has his own stuff that he does on YouTube, Gabor Mate, he's a, a medical doctor, and he does a lot of work around trauma, and he's describing triggers as, whose trigger is it? The trigger like on a gun. The trigger is a small mechanism on the gun. The trigger isn't what makes the bullet go out the barrel of the gun. We get, it, there's a lot of mechanisms that have, have to happen inside the gun, 
and the trigger has to get activated from the outside. Somebody has to pull it. Uh, so when we notice that we get triggered, what's the equivalent of the ammo within us? Where's our gunpowder? How's it stored? Can we protect the gunpowder? Can we keep it from exploding and blowing out the barrel? Can, can the trigger get pulled without activating an explosion? And, you know, using that metaphor of a trigger of it's our trigger. So it's our job to protect our trigger, to be aware of our trigger, to know what triggers us, know what comes in from the outside. And, uh, it's unique for each of us, but, uh, just being able to notice that the word trigger shows up in the trauma world a lot and what is a trigger. So. Yeah, I love that analogy. And the other thing is, you can choose where you point the gun too. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. I mean, yeah. you point it towards a healthy target, something that should be shot, rather than you know your right. loved one or something, and you're blowing up on them. You can turn it towards going and walking in nature, or you know, hitting a punch bag so you've got nothing left. Whatever it is, so you can choose to to have those targets that you know, if you get triggered, they're going to give you a healthy outcome. And that's the whole idea, I think, of even the work that the three of us are kind of engaged in right here now is bringing awareness that we all carry things that were hard for us to move through the first time, much less when they come up as memories and they accumulate. But with that awareness, we can do something different because we have them. What do we do with them? It's it's our experiences and it's another way I like to present it is at some point it'll transition from being why me why did this happen to me to why not me now that i've got it what do i get to do with it can i do something useful that can help others or uh can i curl up in the corner and uh go into a depressive state and withdraw from the world what do i do what do i get to do with these experiences as as we accumulate them yeah and then it seems like the understanding that once you are able to process trauma you become more resilient and you see that with these people. And then on top of that, you now take those experiences just like Ben has and you start doing good with that trauma that you went through and, you know, sharing your story and, and, you know, making the world better. That as well is another incredibly powerful healing tool. So those two combined are things that aren't talked about as much. Oh, you know, I'm going through this dark place. Well, imagine if once you got out the other end, not only are you going to be stronger, but you're going to be able to help all these other people. I think if people understood that more, there'd be more drive to to put on the gloves and fight. Yeah, um, there, there's a lot of work done out in the psychology field around uh, positive growth after, after traumatic events or difficult events in life and being able to move into this hard thing happened and I can make this a positive aspect of my growth now, uh, adds to our, it's our resilience that it, our, our, sorry, our resilience becomes enhanced as we do that. But the resilience that we practice beforehand allows us to do it when the hard things happen because hard things will happen to all of us. That's they're inevitable. So it's, the resilience that we have and the biggest thing around resilience is connection, uh, staying connected with others and helping others. And just like you were describing, moving it back out into the world. Yeah. James, uh, Mark had me work on, uh, five aspects to healing after my injury. And I can always remember three. I can never remember all five. Uh, but you know, he was trying to get me initially to forgive, forgive the guy that tried to murder me. And at first I looked at him like he was crazy. 
Um, then he was trying to teach me gratitude to be grateful for my injury, which I also thought he was crazy. Uh, for forgiveness. Um, <clears throat> so forgiveness, gratitude, meaning, looking for meaning and everything. Okay. Those are my three. What are the other two? Yeah. I can never remember. So the order I like to present them, usually I'll, uh, raise my left hand and I'll start with my thumb gratitude. Then the first finger, the index figure is acceptance, accepting for what's here now get triggered at Disneyland. Oh, this is here now. Wow. Okay. Well, I need to sit down. This is here now. And I'm thinking of this. Uh, there's a lot that we can do around acceptance, compassion, compassion for ourselves. Uh, first responders tend not to allow themselves to be very compassionate for themselves. They, it's actually, there's a lot of research on it. They actually will have a fear response inside the body with the mere thought of being nice and kind and loving to themselves. And so cultivating compassion nudges us into the ability to develop meaning out of something that we've gone through and meaning making out of something that happened yesterday or 10 years ago or 30 or 40 years ago. Our meaning can keep changing. We have the ability to make a positive meaning out of a horrible event. And it, that then nudges us into the ability to find forgiveness when forgiveness is uh, useful and when we're ready, we won't be able to rush forgiveness. But once we get to forgiveness, uh, that tends to allow us to let it go. Doesn't mean it's okay. You tried to kill me, but I can forgive you for it. I'm still going to hold you accountable. You still got to go to prison. You're all of this stuff or to this, a significant other, honey, it's not okay for you to talk to me that way, but I can forgive you for it. It's so not okay that we can't live together anymore, but I can still forgive you. It's different than when we carry it because if we can't get to there, then it starts bringing in regret, resentments and regrets and all sorts of things that will hold us in a depressive state or bring on anxiety and uh, some very powerful negative emotions. So those five again, gratitude, acceptance, compassion, meaning, and forgiveness. Brilliant. Yeah, and the forgiveness thing is huge, and people think that's for the other person, and it's not. I mean, they, what they say that anger is is an acid that you know destroys the vessel. I forget exactly how it goes, but I mean, it's true. Like if you if you've ever had someone cut you up in a car and found yourself effing and blinding at the steering wheel and realized that right. that person didn't even fucking under didn't even realize <laughs> right. that they did it. You that is the perfect analogy to me. You are so fuming and that person has no idea. And it is that that, that is in you and, and the ability to, like you said, be grateful for everything, but then to forgive it, it's the forgiveness is for you ultimately. Yeah. Well, and I, my favorite expression I heard was if you hold a grudge, that's like swallowing poison, hoping the other guy dies. Uh, <laughs> I love that. So yeah, you're in the car all pissed off and that guy's not even looking in his rear view and you're steaming, you know, just angry and, uh, and the other guy just is completely oblivious. So you carry that anger all the rest of the day. And that guy goes on about his day and is enjoying the sunshine. And you can't <laughs> enjoy the sunshine because you're so pissed off. So yeah, forgiveness is is huge. And it took me a long time to get there. But I am yeah grateful that uh, Dr. Foreman got me there. So I, I just like to say one thing about gratitude, though. It's uh, It's not so much grateful that maybe you got stabbed or... <laughs> Maybe I was grateful that I was at the McDonald's incident or some other things throughout my life or for anybody that's listening that the hard thing happened to them. More of 
now that this has happened and here I am now in this moment, can I be grateful that I'm even alive to feel this pain, to feel this sadness? It's kind of an odd thing, but the research around great gratitude, when we practice gratitude every day, it improves our cardiac health across our lifespan. Uh, so when we can't find that, find space for it, can I be grateful for just this breath? Just the fact that I woke up this morning, I'm in so much pain and anguish now, but at least I'm still alive. Oh, well, that seems like not much, but that starts to grow into other things. And then we say, okay, well, now I'm suffering. This is hard. This is sad. I'm feeling lost. I'm whatever it is. And we can say, well, yeah, but I'm grateful that I have the experience because I'm going to come out of it and find that compassion, that meaning, and then forgiveness if it's necessary and and useful. Yeah, I think gratitude is is something that we tend to lose when everything's going well. You know what I mean? So I, I love that Wayne Dyer's work, you know, when it was things you used to say is the first thing you should do when you wake up is swing your legs around and, and just sit on your bed. And, and like you said, take some breaths, and just be grateful that you even woke up that day. So then you have that baseline. So when things start, you know, going array or awry, I guess the right word, that you can go back to, yes, my, my iPhone just got run over by that driver. I didn't even realize that they did it. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, go back to zero. My kids are healthy. You know, I've, I've got food in my stomach. I am so lucky compared to so many people. And I think that's, that to me is, is if we bring that gratitude into everyday practice, I think that's a great, um, defense against depression as well, because I think depression, can also circle around loss and and if you if you walk with a full heart realizing how lucky you are then at least your baseline is a lot higher than waking up and going you know poor me ultimately yeah one of the practices i've done when i have conducted critical incident stress debriefings is uh i will sometimes invite the participants to Bring into mind people, things, aspects of themselves like their health or their that they're employed or that they have health insurance, whatever it is that they were grateful for before the negative event happened, before the critical event happened. So they'll frequently they'll bring in family and kids and loved ones and there's all sorts of things that they'll bring in awareness. They don't have to say anything to anybody. They just bring in their awareness. Once they bring that in their awareness, then while this critical incident was happening, what happened to those things that you were grateful for before it even occurred? And they start to realize, they start to bring in their awareness that they're still grateful for those things even during the hard thing. And then one more time, okay, now that that is all over, here we are sitting around a meeting room uh, talking about this horrible incident. What are you grateful for now? And they start finding that there's more things that they were grateful for that didn't exist before the tragic tra tragic event. And they're able to connect to that. It, there's There starts to be a settling and a softening when they're able to hold the gratitude while they're recalling the hard critical event that they just went through. Right, yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense to me. It really does. It's, you know, again, that, that baseline, the, the more grateful you are, I guess that the, the smaller the event may seem, and you know, obviously what happened to Ben was a pretty major event, but for a lot of us, we're probably not going to get stabbed as paramedics, you know, so that event is going to be smaller. So when you have this tapestry of gratitude and you place that one issue that you're going through, 
all of a sudden, you know, I think it's going to not minimize it is the wrong word, but it'll definitely reduce its impact on the entire landscape of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, I think it's time we we go to some wrap up questions, but I want to thank you before we do that. It's been a great conversation. I know for everyone listening, we started face to face in the garage. Um, I had left the power cord, so the computer ran out of uh, juice. So now we're doing the second part a month later over Skype. Um, and I'm hoping it splices well together. I think it will. Um, but uh, yeah, so I just wanted to finish up that, that last part on EMDR. So thank you so much. Um, so the wrap up questions, the first one I ask, and this will go to both of you, um, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be what we've discussed today or something completely different. Uh, so I'll take that one first. Um, I would say my favorite book is, uh, emotional survival for law enforcement, um, by Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. Um, he wrote the book. He was a former cop turned psychologist like Dr. Foreman. And he wrote the book with cops in mind. Uh, but any first responder who reads it will recognize immediately that he is addressing all first responders. And I got to meet uh, Dr. Gil Martin and I gave him I gave him shit for it. You know, I said, hey, man, you wrote this book, but you you touched paramedics, EMTs, firefighters, you know, uh, any law enforcement whatsoever, Department of Corrections, you know, dispatchers. And he he laughed and he said, yeah, he said, as soon as he released the book, his friends who were firefighters called him and said, hey, man, you know, you you titled the book wrong. Um, but it is I mean, if you read it, you're, you'll you'll notice. I mean, it is a perfect summary of, I think, what first responders go through, kind of the span of their career uh, and many of the pitfalls that we fall into. Um, and so I can tell you that in my department, we. Uh, we now have an educational mental health education day in the fire Academy and we hand that book out, uh, for all of our recruits to read, uh, for them and their families. So if you haven't read that book, uh, because it says cop on the front of it, I encourage you to look past that and, and read it anyway. It's a quick, easy read and it's an amazing, uh, mental health training book. Brilliant. All right. So Mark, your book. Yeah, well, the the one that Ben mentioned, uh, some police departments also, they make it mandatory reading for their recruits in the academy, and we'll even test them on it. Uh, but for me, uh, a book that I've recommended to numerous clients, and uh, I, I keep a copy of it myself around pretty readily, and it's an easy read. It's it's not very thick. Uh, it's called The Book of Forgiveness uh, by Desmond Tutu and his daughter. Uh and it goes through some very concrete processes for, you know, moving through a forgiveness process, hitting on some of the stuff that we were already mentioning earlier around it. Uh, because inevitably, all of us, because we're humans, we will be harmed by somebody else. Somebody will do something that will hurt us emotionally, physically, uh, spiritually. And if we carry that with us, it's, it's poisonous. So this process of being able to forgive is healing for us. It allows us to move on and stay connected with the rest of uh, people that we care about. So the book of forgiveness. Brilliant. That's a, a man I'd love to get on the podcast. That'd be a far reach, but Desmond Tutu <laughs> would be amazing. Yes. Yeah, he would be. All right. So the same question, but a movie. Oh boy. Uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> that tells me that you've never listened to an episode of Behind the Show podcast before. No, I've, I've listened to them. I uh, so it's funny you say that. I've I've lost all appetite for movies that are dark or deep. You know, like I I need an escape, and so uh, my wife gives me a hard time. But you know, I I I'm no joke. I'm 41 years old. I, I would prefer to watch a Disney movie uh, versus anything else. You know, um, like Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan, which are Oscar award-winning, amazing movies, but I just can't bring myself to go there emotionally. I want to just check out. So, um, yeah, anything with a cartoon and funny and cheeky, I would rather that than than some really well-produced, well-made, deep, dark movie, you know? Um, I don't like seeing war movies anymore. I don't like that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I like escape escape movies give me a disney movie give me a cartoon uh musical any day right it's funny you said so you're not a big fan of halloween then for example oh like scary movies <laughs> oh, oh and that before this job i i jump you know when when uh when you're supposed to jump that i i jump so i end up spilling my popcorn all over my lap uh no i don't like scary movies at all that's always amazed me, though. We've talked about this on the podcast before, is how do we get to the point? Because, I mean, I'm all about ghost ones. I love, like, The Grudge and The Ring and, you know, oh, spooky no. ones. But how do we get to the point where, you know, you come home, you've worked your 9 to 5, and it's, you know, Friday evening. And, oh, let's watch a film. What do you want to watch? Oh, let's watch Cabin Fever, a bunch of kids that are in the woods that get <laughs> mutilated, tortured, and murdered. Yeah, I'll make some cakes. You know what I mean? I don't understand right, right. how that became entertainment. And then we have this question about, you know, some of the violence in society, the same with the video games. Like, yes, their storytelling is amazing and it might come across some, you know, violent crime and stuff. But when it's a room full of people being tortured and murdered, I don't understand how we we got ourselves to that was entertainment and a way to decompress. Well, you know, for the average person, they like that little taste of adrenaline, right? They like going on roller coasters to feel their pulse go up. They like scary movies because they like their pulse to go up. They they want the rush. Uh, I think as first responders, you, you either constantly crave it or you just get get washed out of it. You know, you just don't want any more adrenaline dump. Um, and so for me, you know, I'm over it. I I was a rock climber and I like scuba diving and skydiving and I used to do all of that and. And now when I come home, I just want to check out, watch a sappy movie, you know, uh, and and take a nap. So I've I've come full circle to just I want to do as little uh, adrenaline dumping as possible on my time off. So I, I understand why people like scary movies. You know, they get that jump and that thrill and they laugh and they think it's funny, um, you know, or shoot them up movies, war movies. But uh, I don't know. I don't see a lot of people coming back from war and then wanting to watch a war movie. And I certainly don't see anybody coming back from war wanting to play paintball. You know what I mean? Like nobody wants to reenact that stuff after they've been through it. So that's for me. I just come home and I want to not think about work and I don't want to <clears throat> adrenaline dump any more than I have to. That makes perfect sense. All right, Mark, same question, movie. <clears throat> I'm I'm struggling internally with uh, <laughs> going with a one that's rather heady or uh, uh, like Ben was saying, a cartoon. Uh, you can give me both. <laughs> both, yeah. So uh, Cloud Atlas uh, came out a few years ago. Uh, Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, 
many other well-known actors in it. Each actor played numerous roles. And uh, for me, that movie just represents so much of how we are connected across generations. And the good in us, the bad in us, it gets represented through the whole thing. Uh, and that, in essence, what it, as, as, a, as a cop and as a therapist, I've been right up along the edge viewing humanity and what, it, what we have the ability to do to each other on the bad side and on the good side. Uh, so Cloud Atlas uh, would, was the one that, first time I saw it was a hard one to watch. I was like, what the hell's going on here? Because it covers the lifespan of about 300 years. But um, when I really get into it, I go, wow, there's a lot there about our connectedness. But the other one uh, is a Pixar Disney movie, Inside Out. Uh, I've recommended many clients watch it. Uh, most adults, at least the adults I talk to, when they watch it, they walk out of there crying. They go, what the fuck? It, it's funny, but it's moving because what we do is we get to see something about ourselves. Uh, well, I've heard it's the most accurate movie about how memory actually works. Like, yeah, the a depiction of how the, the creators of it, they consulted with some of the leading uh, people around personality development and around emotions uh, and then presented it in a very creative way. So it pulls on us and it uh, those five emotions that they deal with that live inside that little girl's head, uh, fear, anger, sadness, disgust, and joy, that's right at the basis of being human. Uh, and then what I like to do is describe to people one thing, the emotion that they didn't deal with that we start to develop around uh, 15 months old, and then we spend the rest of our lives perfecting it is the emotion of shame. If they would have dealt with shame in that movie, it would have been a downer, but that's the thing that causes us most of our problems. So, yeah, those, those two movies, uh, Cloud Atlas and uh, Inside Out. Brilliant. Well, I just saw an animation. Um, I forget who recommended it. It was one of the guests, and uh, it was incredible. It was, the film was Coco, and it dealt with death. Oh, um, yeah. But uh, again, yeah, I was crying like a little girl. It was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so then uh, another question on the movie – uh, topic. What about a documentary that you love? Well, so the latest documentary. So I'm going to just undo everything I said about not liking heavy movies. But uh, the guys at the firehouse wanted to watch the documentary Restrepo, um, and it was about a, a young platoon all going off to war together, and a young man named Restrepo was killed pretty early in the fight. So they named the base after him. Um, but it's a documentary following these these young guys over in Afghanistan fighting. And um, I didn't want to watch it, but I sat down with the guys and watched it. And it was, oh, man, it was so good. Just <clears throat> um, giving you a picture of what it's like, you know, over there uh, in the sandbox, as they say. So that was a really – that's the latest one I saw. And that's, so that's the first one comes to mind. It was very high quality and, and I – recommend it it was not uplifting in any way so it went against all of my basis for movies i want to watch but uh it was very good so yeah i had the guy that made that sebastian junger on the show a couple of times now and uh you know one of his observations was those guys saw more combat i think than anyone else in afghanistan at the time and yet they were so happy but when they went back to i believe it was italy to to demob to to uh, get their R and R, and they were separated. That's when they started, you know, feeling the effects of what they've been through. Yeah, that yeah, that was a 
it was really well done. And, and I, you know, there's a, a scene where they're filming and these guys have been under attack, you know, for so long and they're just always on alert. And one of the guys goes, you know, I just wish they would breach the wall so we could just go hand to hand and just get it over with. Um, and man, I find myself thinking about that a lot. Just, you know, he just wanted, he just wanted to end it, you know, just be done with this conflict. Let's just have it out. Like you and me, you know, hand to hand, let's just get this over with, get it done. And, and whoever wins walks away, but let's just end this stalemate of sniping at each other and, and picking at each other from a distance, you know? And, uh, I just, man, I think about that all the time. Um, not to even compare what I've been through to what those guys have been through. I, I will take my experience over their experience any day of the week, but there was certainly times when, you know, during the trial, I just wanted to tell the judge, Hey, let's not do this trial. Just give him and I a knife, lock us in a room and whoever walks out will be done with this. And I just remember that exact feeling of just wanting to face my attacker and end it. Just let's finish it, you know? Uh, and so I really kind of connected with that kid. I remember thinking, man, I, I get where you're coming from, buddy. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was a good, that was a good documentary. If you get to interview the creator again, please give him my regards. That was well, well done. I will. I will. And thank you for that perspective too. I mean, that's a very powerful, you know, philosophy that you had with that. We are watching the film. So then Mark, same thing, documentary. It's not so much a documentary, but a, a series. It's uh, on PBS. It's Finding Your Roots. Uh, it's been going on for a couple seasons now, but it uh, takes celebrities, but uh, down uh, out backwards through their roots as to where they came from. And I guess it fits right in with me picking um, Cloud Atlas as a favorite movie that it's about how we're all human. We're all moving through this world and we're connected and uh, we have darkness in our back histories and our backgrounds. We got things that we look back on. We might be proud of and things we look back on and say, wow, I can't believe my great grandfather did that or whatever. Uh, as I've watched many of those episodes, it really starts to, for me, uh, portray how we are all the same. Brilliant. Well, I've never heard of that one, so I'm going to have to look that one up. So thank you for that suggestion. All right, next question. If, uh, excuse me, not if. Is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and extended audience that we have? Well, I cheated. I already gave you uh, one I highly recommend, Ashley Iverson, who uh, I've gotten to meet and get to know, and her story is incredible. Uh, you already did your podcast with her, but I guess you're going to have to redo it. So um, I guess she'll come on after us. So uh, Ashley is a, you, you talk about resilience and overcoming obstacles and finding gratitude in life. Uh, Ashley, I think kind of summarizes all of that uh, for me, um, losing her husband and then finding a meaning in that and then turning it around and trying to use that to help first responders. Um, man, I got to tell you that to me is, is quite a remarkable person. Um, she created a foundation that, that is trying to teach yoga to, uh, first responders, to firefighters to try to help us build resilience, you know, so that we are more mindful and more aware 
So uh, I've since I got to know her, I, I finagled getting a yoga instructor to come to our station. And we did our first session last week, and it was a blast. Uh, it was great because we were already kind of having a stressful day, and this yoga instructor came in and, uh, you know, not only stretching us out, but got us thinking and being mindful and being aware of our surroundings and our breath and controlling our breathing and controlling our stress. Um, we did this hour session, and then we got a call. It interrupted. We we didn't get to finish our session, but we ran a call and it was stressful. It was a, <clears throat> we ended up in an altercation with a patient who was diabetic and, uh, you know, we had to take him to the ground and fight him. Uh, but it, it was funny cause in the middle of wrestling this guy, I, I remember thinking just breathe and, you know, be, be more mindful. It was pretty funny. So <laughs> I haven't told Ashley that yet, but it was, uh, it was really good timing. And, and so I can tell you it works. Uh, so if I could help Ashley and her, her foundation and, and get more first responders doing yoga, um, I, I will do that. So, yeah. And then it was so strange Like Ashley and I met, you know, you, you were there too. And we, we got there, she came to the, the hotel, you were there, but she got there a few minutes early. So we started talking and, and, you know, she kind of got to that emotional place. Then we started recording, did it. And, and after, like, she, she texted me a couple of times and you could tell it just didn't feel right for her. Like she wasn't, she didn't feel like she was in the place to be able to really tell the story the way she wanted to. And the universe, God, whatever, you know, you want to call it, just, it, it's, it's so strange. I got back and, and the audio was shit. And it was a face to face <laughs> interview, you know, it was the same, same equipment that we did for the first part of this interview. And yeah, there was just bizarre distortion and everything on both mics. And it was, it was, you know, salvageable, but it would have sounded terrible. And so I called her and we're like, all right, let's do it again. I think this is, you know, God saying, yeah, that was a dress rehearsal and we'll do the proper one next month. So we'll be recording in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Awesome. Brilliant. All right. So same question to Mark, a guest. I'm just going to build off of uh, the idea that Ben was talking about around yoga and mindfulness and, and that uh, the new career path that I'm, it's not a career path, but the new ventures that I'm moving into is, uh, teaching mindfulness to public safety. Uh, but there's a gentleman, his name is Richard Gerling. Uh, he's out of Oregon. Uh, he's a police lieutenant, uh, but he also teaches mindfulness. He's written uh, a book around it. Uh, he's been going around the country teaching on it, this, the whole concept of mindfulness, whether it's through yoga or whether meditation for first responders is really getting a lot of tread, uh, as of late, um, the cops and the firefighters that get exposed to it, they start to really love it. They like it once they allow themselves to engage with it, uh, get past the, the touchy feely aspects of it. They, and, and they start to realize that, uh, might, give them some, uh, it, it enhances and strengthens their resiliency as they move along through a career. So, uh, yeah, Richard Gerling, uh, out of Oregon. Brilliant. I like his name. It sounds almost like mine. Close. <laughs> yeah. And my dad's Richard as well. Um, so, and then on that note, you mentioned Garbo Mate as well. That's someone else I'm, I've been trying to get. I mean, obviously yeah. he's a very well-respected, uh, gentleman in his field, but I think he'd be an amazing person too. Um, all right. So then the last thing before we talk about where we can find you both, uh, what do you do to decompress? Uh, for me lately, um, yoga and exercise, I'm trying to get back into exercise. I 
I got very lazy and was enjoying uh, being a couch potato for a while. But as we all know, the just everything goes downhill quickly when you do that. So getting back into uh, swimming and running and, and lifting weights, uh, doing yoga. Uh, I really find traveling and speaking and sharing my story with other first responders is very therapeutic and I do enjoy doing that. Um, so that's kind of what I've been doing for, for fun. Um, <clears throat> Mark. Yeah. 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 Turning 40, uh, <laughs> doesn't help that couch potato. That's <laughs> true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So, um, for, for me, uh, I spend a lot of time out hiking, uh, out in nature. Uh, frequently I'll get up and I'll tell my wife I'm going for a hike and just disappear for a couple hours and all by myself out on the trail, do a lot of that. Uh, but I also, um, uh, get involved in, uh, as a hobby, uh, making videos, uh, my, my son describes that I have gas, uh, gear acquisition syndrome and <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm collecting things like microphones and cameras and tripods, et cetera, and, uh, software for producing videos. And that gives me a lot of relaxation also. Uh, then reading, I, I'm constantly reading, uh, if I'm on, I, I have my own YouTube addiction, but it's uh, educational kind of stuff that fits along the lines of exactly what we're talking about here of uh, humanity, healing, trauma, all that stuff, as, as weird as that sounds. But there's a lot of learning that can be done. There's also a lot of crap on YouTube. But uh, <laughs> yes, Sorry, is. YouTube. <laughs> uh, They're aware. Yeah. But, yeah but, uh, YouTube's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. First, we're hearing this. <laughs> Why didn't someone tell me? <laughs> the grown men are having nerf battles on my channel. <laughs> All right. Well, so I want to want to just make sure that we highlight where people can find you. So Ben, first, where are you available online? Are you you're doing the speaking side as well now? Obviously, you know, helping tell your story um, and using it to to help us, our community. So where can people find you? Yeah, so it's very easy. Uh, I have a manager now, and she's got me up and running with a website, and I'm feeling all official. Uh, but www.benvernon.com, um, and you can reach me at ben at benvernon.com, and my manager, Chris Verdek, she's at chris at benvernon.com. Um, and then I have to – can we plug the book, even though it's still in the rough stages? Absolutely. You have to. Get people, yeah, get so, people excited. Uh, Drooling yeah, for Mark it. and I are working on a book together uh, with everything that I've learned from him and everything that he has to share with first responders because he's been one and then he, you know, uh, has been a therapist for one for years. Uh, we've been trying to write a book together to kind of bring awareness to, to more mental health issues. So um, we just got back the first edition from the editor and there was a lot of red ink. So we're going back to the, you know, to fix all the the red but it's coming out soon i'm hoping uh by by this summer we'll have it up and running um so yeah shameless plug for a book that isn't even out yet but uh <laughs> does it have a title uh i think we're gonna call it uh what being unarmed in a knife fight uh a first responder's guide to mental health so um there's gonna be a great picture on the cover i think of me getting stabbed in the chest <laughs> but just the idea that a lot of us are going into this career unarmed, unprepared, untrained for mental health. Um, and then, 
kind of, I think almost every story I've heard is we get our asses kicked first and then struggle through and try to recover later. Um, and that seems like a really bad model. You know, if we could train and be prepared and be armed for this mental health job that we're taking on, it would be nice to have that, um, learned before we get into the career, you know, I think you should call it bleeding black. Why coffee is at the root of all knife crime. <laughs> Just an idea. You might have to rewrite okay, some shit. That might but... actually, that's a, good, that's a good title. That's a good title. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> and Mark, same thing for you. How can people find you? So uh, I have a mindfulness teaching partner, uh, Michael St. John. He's a retired uh, fire chief up out of uh, Pleasanton, uh, up in Northern California. And we've just recently started a company called mindful awareness and public safety training Institute or maps TI for short M A P is in Paul essence and Sam TI.com. So maps TI.com. Uh, we have a website, uh, we're an LLC. We're all formalized and stuff and we're creating formalized classes to teach mindfulness. We'll go into organizations and do one-day seminars, three-day seminars, uh, a lot of different packages all around mindfulness and staying connected and staying grounded and staying connected with ourselves because uh, that's usually what starts to fall away is uh, we lose touch with our own selves. And that's what all this is about is staying well. And that's the biggest weapon we can take is staying in touch with our own self. Brilliant. All right. Well, I want to say thank you so much to both of you. It's been such a cool dynamic. I mean, not only have we done it face to face and then part Skype, but, you know, to have, you know, Ben, a firefighter who was a victim, you know, of this horrendous, you know, assault. And then Mark, a, a career in law enforcement that became a counselor and your paths together. And then, you know, comparing notes after. Um, there's so much value in this conversation and it's been really funny too. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. <laughs> so I just want to thank you both for, for being so generous with your time, being so patient as well, getting the second part done. No, thank you, James, for having us on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, James, for uh, your dedication and commitment for doing all this. Thanks.